Tonight on Fox, lock up the bagels and cream cheese and prepare for a wild ride when Fox presents When Jews Attack, sponsored by the committee to elect George W. Bush and by KFC, where you can get the new GOP bucket. The GOP bucket is all white meat, right wings, and only $29.95. When Jews Attack, tonight on Fox. Baby, launch a couple missiles toward a place we know. Name a matter fella whose first name begins with O. There's one thing we all understand. Al-Qaeda won't be finished until we blow up Pakistan. We could chase them around forever with our tanks and all our troops. But special forces are so tired of jumping through them hoops. You know we need another plane. Absolutely. Let's cut out all the nonsense and we'll blow up Pakistan. Yeah, let's set that for a schedule this weekend. Now, Kata needs a nuclear tank. All right. Why don't we stop pussyfoot and go blow up Pakistan? <laughs> boom, boom. Hey, it's 10.02 at 560 WQAM. Tuesday, August 15, and the deaths just keep on coming. They're showing all these poor schleppers in Lebanon there going back to where their homes used to be. Don't go back there. To where their homes used to be? Yeah, I got that. What's the and point? There used to be a lot of people alive who aren't anymore. Anyway, here's Georgia's poll result from yesterday. Boy, I, I already just reached right over it. I shut off that monitor. Good plan. In case anybody might think I was going to take any calls today, the answer is no. Now, that's kind of my summertime uh, mentality, you know? Hi! Wasn't summertime time for vacation? Yeah. Right. So I'm taking a vacation <laughs> from maybe that, take that some, crowd. Yeah. From that crowd, you know. <laughs> bye bye. I would say have a great life to those people, but of course their problem is I have no life. they don't have one. Eight hundred ninety eight votes on George's poll yesterday. What scares you the most? Well, I sure voted for the right one, but then again so did just about everybody else. This administration, the Bush crowd, the neocons, mm -hmm. they put the con in neocon, baby. They put the Nazi in neo Nazi. This administration five hundred and forty eight. That's sixty one percent of all the votes. Driving in South Florida, 64. That would scare the hell out of me, too, but I don't do that much no more. Terrorist, 50. Arr. You know, that, that's a great line. There are more people in America killed every year, in, die in accidents in bathtubs mm -hmm. than killed by terrorists. Well, let's you kill something. Let's uh, start a war on bathtubs. That's a good idea. In fact, you can uh, kind of close up your bathtub with a visqueen and uh, duct tape. Terrorist 50, filling up my car 36. That's a scary proposition. And thanks again, Mr. President, for those low, very bargain basement gas prices. Uh, Snakes on a plane 31. <laughs> speaking, speaking in public. About 30, man. I don't, I don't know what, where did that come from. Uh, a lot of people are afraid to get up in front of people and make speeches. You know. Yeah. Well, how many people in this audience do you think get up and make speeches? Not a lot because they're scared to. Well, evidently from the poll. About 30, man. Going to the doctor or dentist 28. Bunch of pansies. Getting homeowner's insurance in Florida, 26. Seeing an EPD, EPT box in the bathroom, 25. The media, 25. Hurricanes, 21. 
Gators didn't get any, and certainly the Seminoles didn't even get a thought. And the cable going out 14. No comment. Gators. <laughs> no comment <laughs> on that last one. Oh, man. Woo! Anyway, uh, a sad note, and thanks to uh, your buddy Miguel for passing this along. Uh, from uh, Melissa Chandler and family. It says, Dear Neil, my friend is a big fan of yours, and I also enjoyed your show, especially during the hurricanes. My friend said you've always mentioned Wayne Chandler and the Channel 7 weatherman. Well, I'm his daughter, and I'm sad to say that he has passed away at the age of 65. There was a small article in Saturday Sun Sentinel paper about him. I've heard you uh, always have nice things to say about my father, and I thank you for that. If you'd like to contact me to make sure that this is real and not some fake email, well, I'm sure it's not. And she's got her email and phone number, etc. We had some problems with the hospitals that were taking care of him. Would love your view. Well, hospitals oh, are... Yeah, don't go in the hospital unless you're, you're expecting not to come out. That's my suggestion to everybody. Like Dick Schaap. Remember Dick Schaap? No. You don't, but I bet you Josh does. The sports guy? Yeah, I remember. He went in for like some uh, you know, minor skin surgery or some whatever it was, and uh, they killed him in the hospital. Anyway, she says, I hope I didn't waste your time. You, you certainly did not, Melissa. I just heard you were a fan, and my dad was a fan of yours, too. I did not know that. Thanks for listening, and uh, there's a service for my father Saturday, August 19th at Fred Hunter's on Taft Street. And you're more than welcome to attend. Well, I won't be there, Melissa, but our condolences to the whole family. And Wayne Chandler was a heck of a guy. Yes, he was. George was a big fan because he yes, loved when Wayne Chandler was doing the uh, Sunday, Sunday Funnies. Funnies. That's right. Toby, the, the, uh, Toby the Robot. What was he? Toby. Toby the Robot. He made out of a garbage can. And he was also the Channel 7 weatherman, one of them for a long, long time. Um, who was the other guy? Oh, Wayne Ferris was the news guy with the bad hairpiece. See, back, back in the day, I know it comes as a real shock to those of you who watch the local news now and wonder, who the hell are these people? You know, I, I think it, with the exception of maybe Tony Cigaretto, who's a silly person anyway, but with the exception of him and Dwight Lauderdale, nobody knows who these people are anymore. I mean, once upon a time, you turn on, like in a real market, you know, you turn on the news on whichever channel you like, and you, you could depend on seeing Ralph Redneck or Ann Bishop or, um, you know, or Wayne Chandler or uh, Bob Weaver, Right. Right. These people were like legendary. They were there every day. You grew up with these people. Now it's like a pot. Well, I shouldn't have left out Don. No. We know who he is, too. That's about it. And they just got a bunch of bimbos on there talking about crap, you know, like uh, the people of Lesbian on and stuff like that and uh, the Israeli port city of Haifa. I still can't get over that lesbian on thing. That, that, that to me, you know. I wish I'd have taped it. I just it. can't even imagine why she has that job. Can you? I mean, it really takes a rocket scientist to figure out why that uh, chick has got that job. <laughs> By the way, Ariel Sharon has uh, got something to say. Oh, he's yeah. on the way out. He's uh, in his last uh, condition, worsened yesterday, and he's off Taurus. That must be the Lord punishing him, you know, because God sometimes has bad aim. He ain't still in charge, baby. It's that Ehud Olmert. He's the uh, murderer du jour. He's the one that's busy killing people. Anyway, the uh, ceasefire is holding over there. They're holding it. And then, of course, maybe come Shabbos, then when they, uh, you know, they can't hold cabinet meetings on Shabbos because they're very religious, very from, but they can still kill people on Shabbos. That's, that's a good thing. They can still drop lots of bombs and bomb convoys of people trying to get uh, away from all the horror and nightmares. But nevertheless. So, Barry Jackass, this is the lead-in for today's poll. Oh, I got, I got so much stuff today, I may have to stay until midnight. Curtis Stevenson at 2, Geldy at 4. Oh, my God. Aren't we ever going to learn our lesson or what? Talking hardball with the Crow at 7 o'clock. And then the Marlins uh, pregame show at 9.35 because they're out there on the West Coast against the Red Hot Dodgers, who've won 16 of their last 17 games, including 4-2 over the Marlins last night. That drops the Marlins back to eight games under 500 again. Just when every time it looks like they're going to make a little bit of a move. Isn't that two in a row now they lost? Yes. Out there on the West Coast? Or no? 
No, that's one in a row. Tonight yeah, they're yeah. going for well, two, two in a row. Yeah. I'm sorry. They lost two or three. No, because they just got two were cleaning up in Pansy of Washington Nationals. See, if they could play all their games against the Pirates and the Nationals, they'd be okay. Anyway, the Marlins and the Dodgers on the West Coast at 10-10 tonight. Then we got Mishmash at 5 o'clock in the morning. Anybody heard Mish on the air? Is he any good? I shouldn't put it that way. I met him. He's a nice guy. Is he? Sure. Does he belong on the air? And then, of course, I, I we got know. the big O. Rock solid for uh, the Humper, who's on vacation this week. In fact, I'm trying to figure out, because I remember Hank went through that thing last time I was on. He went through that whole long, convoluted schedule about taking all those days off. And, and then uh, when he comes back on, it can't, it can't be gone that long, can he, till the 28th? Because that's the day the new schedule starts. Th- I think that's, uh, yes, that's, that's the That's the game plan? Yeah. So you won't hear the Humper in the morning anymore. Oh, the big O. Oh, Woo. rock solid. So brush up on your Espanol. Anyway, Barry Jackass wrote, now this is last Wednesday he wrote this, and here it is Tuesday, it's almost a week later, but I'm sure knowing the way you do things, you probably just gave this a lick and a schmear. I licked it and smeared it. Did you? Yeah, twice. Well, I mean, because from the poll I'm taking today, they don't know what the new QM schedule is going to be starting August 28th. Correct. So we're trying to, like, promote it and uh, just throw it out there for you. you I I made not a very big deal out of it. Took that mini poll I told you about. Yeah. And uh, talked about it maybe in like an hour. Bada boop, bada beep. No. Well, Barry Jackass, who has, by the way, no idea that the spring radio ratings came out at all, or anything else positive that might be said about this radio station, because we're not across the street. We're not those guys. Former Dolphin linebacker Kimba Bocamper said Tuesday night, this being a week ago tonight, he has accepted an offer from uh, to join WQM's morning show. Oh, my God. Bocamper, who has been a fill-in host on the station, said he was told he will work with former Y100 personality Kenny Walker, who, Bocamper will keep his job as sportscaster at Channel 4. Beginning August 28th, writes Little Barry, rhymes with... You fairy! Morning host Hank Goldberg will shift to 4 to 7 p.m. Jim managed to work 2 to 4 p.m., then join Goldberg in the 4 to 5 hour. So, in other words, Mad Dog's 2 to 5, and Hank is 4 to 7, and the 4 to 5 is uh, the two working together, which was my idea about five years ago. And then uh, the Clarence takes credit for that. They stole that from me. That's okay. It may, not be, it may not be the best hour in South Florida radio, but it'll certainly be the most expensive, I'll tell you that. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. That's an expensive hour of power. It, yeah. So as a result, there it is for you. I just laid it out. So now you can vote more uh, better informed on our poll today, which is, here's my poll. And we got 640 Ooh. votes already. I think we got a shot at 1,000. Even Josh Cordes is enjoying his HDTV now. I can't believe a little schlepper like you has got HDTV. Well, I, I just had the TV. You know, all, I had, all they did was change out the box. You know, I didn't have to go buy a TV like you did. Five bucks a month, man. I sure hope you enjoyed that last check. I sure hope you spent it wisely. So I can't already... afford no HGTV. Yeah, that, that's what I was so. Uh, I said to him, I said, how come a punk like you that's making like 50 cents an hour can afford HGTV? I you got the compatible it. TV. It's five bucks a month. Well, that was a good move. That's right. And now you got the uh, HGTV on there. Let's hopefully your cable will stay on. What's your take on the announced uh, new QAM lineup is our poll question. We got 640 <laughs> votes on the way to 1,000. We'll do it easy. I'm confident. What is it? 249. They don't know what it is. Well, you do now. I just got through telling you. So now you can vote with uh, some, you know, with some meat behind your vote. Right? <coughs> right. Bacon, I hope. Who? I just had my bacon. It was Dan. I'm having my now. always doing? Oh, they're great. They're the best. Are they there already? Mm-hmm. Who is Kenny Walker, 75? That was my vote because I just, I, I know he was on Y100. Did he work with Footy? Yes, it was Kenny and Footy in the morning oh, for like 100 years. I sure. Maybe he'll come on and tell you what an a-hole Footy really is. Maybe he'll tell I you doubt that. it. Oh, why? Are they pretty tight? They I don't know. You No know, one ever does, you know? No, except us. Right. 
Who is Kenny Walker? 77 now. Big improvement, 67. Well, I don't know how to take that. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's good. That's a positive sign. I hate this poll, 48. Well, too bad. What does this have to do with Fidel, 44? Kimba Bocamper is coma-inducing, 43. I would certainly tend to agree with that. A great guy, but coma-inducing. So if you want to sleep in late and don't want to be jarred out of bed early in the morning with sounds like, like that, that'll jar you right off the edge of the mattress. Then be sure and start tuning in August 28th. It's okay, 33. What are they smoking over there? About 30, man. About 30 votes. Well, I think when they did that lobotomy on uh, Joe Bell, they, they just took the whole brain right out. Disaster, 26. 26 people predicting a disaster and probably all of them work across the street. Uh, what does this have to do with Israel, 17? Good point. And won't change a thing, a dozen. Dirty dozen out of 650 votes. So that's our poll for today. By the way, this whole thing with this uh, terror plot and blowing up the planes, you notice we went from the bloodbath in Iraq, which is still mm -hmm. going on, worse mm -hmm. than ever. We went from that to the bloodbath in Lebanon, which uh, the ceasefire is holding. They're holding it. Uh, and then we went from that to the terror alert in Britain, where they're just having a nervous breakdown, and the airlines are foaming at the mouth, which is the real reason why the Brits dropped it down a notch, the terror warning, because uh, British Air and... Uh, Ryanair and EasyJet and some of the they were having just a nervous breakdown because they're losing a crap load of money. So as a result, well, uh, it's not as bad as we thought, although they are standing outside in the rain. That was the one good thing about my trip back from Amsterdam. Security was very, very lax, uh, shockingly so, and we got back an hour early and thanked the Lord for that, that I was going through England. There's another good reason to stay out of England besides those silly-ass pasty Brits. 1014 at 560 WQM. In fact, if you go to Amsterdam, you'll see more than your share of silly-ass pasty Brits, the thicknecks, and uh, you don't need to go to England to see them. Here's some good news for you, for all you pigs out there, and that is that the Emerald Coast has brought Lobster Fest back every Friday through Sunday. The Emerald Coast, of course, being the best Chinese buffet in all of South Florida. They have three locations for you. They're in Sunrise. Pembroke Pines and Sunny Isles Beach. Over 100 different items featured on the Emerald Coast Buffet. If you've got a big appetite, go in there and try them all. In fact, probably a good idea is to fast for like a week before you go in there. And just pig out. Just shovel it all down your fat puss. They've got six delicious gourmet soups. And then go for the New York steak cooked, grilled to your order, juicy and delicious the way you love it. Hand-carved prime rib. There's a sushi bar and all the traditional Asian dishes, as well as a salad and a seal bar. There's so much food, you won't know what to shove in your mouth next at the Emerald Coast. And their dessert bar is spectacular during the week. On the weekends, even more spectacular -er because the 40-inch chocolate fountain will make your mouth water as you hand-dip your strawberries and other fruits in there, your marshmallows, cheesecake, and other decadent treats, and loads of milk chocolate for dessert. A perfect ending to a big pig out. This isn't just a meal. You know, you go to any restaurant for a meal. This is a real feast at the Emerald Coast Chinese Buffet. And no headaches either because they don't use any MSG, no cornstarch. They cook all their goodies only with healthy cholesterol-free canola oil, which I've been telling you for about 100 years. So when your appetite really kicks up to a high degree, when it gets to the red alert, bring the whole family to the Emerald Coast. Call 954-572-3822. Don't forget it every Friday through Sunday. It's Lobster Fest, too, at the Emerald Coast. 954-572-3822. This is Neil Rogers. Rock solid. This is 560 QAM. Neil, God. Roll out the barrel, oh! expensive barrel of oil. Pay for the barrel, and it will make your blood boil. Fight me, you Arabs, and Venezuelan too. Now's the time to put the barrel up a certain part. 
Shove this oil barrel right where the sun don't shine. Got a silver a barrel. Rectum. We got a new thing in mind. We'll fill our own barrels with what we grow on our land. Cube. And when we don't need your barrels, you can all go pound sand. Oh. 20 past 10 at 560. Very well expressed, if you ask me. Here's an alarming story before I get into the meat of the matter. I got, I got something I'm going to read later on in this show. Josh must not have, Does it take you, like, extra longer to read those stories? I mean, it's not to read them, but I mean to put them on the website when they're, like, 8,000 uh, pages long? Well, naturally, yeah. Well, you must have flipped out when you saw that story by Bill Christensen, former yeah. CIA analyst. It was, like, Stop six pages. the theories. I beg your pardon? It's, like, six pages. Oh, I don't know. It goes on forever. It's going to take me probably an hour to read it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Former CIA analyst, stop belittling the theories about 9-11. Boy, that's awfully good. That's uh, going to be later on. I'm saving that. You have, you have to save the good stuff for later on. Everybody wants the good stuff. Just ask that's the right. wiener. A wiener. <laughs> a poll conducted by what bills itself as the world's most visited Christian website indicates a surprising number of Christians are addicted to pornography. According oh, to raw no. story. And believe me, they like it raw. The poll results indicate that 50% of all Christian men and 20% of all Christian women are addicted to pornography, said Clay Jones, founder and president of Second Glance Ministries. Oh, if at first you don't succeed, give it a second glance sure, in your it'll pants. Look, it'll look better. The group defines addicted as applied to pornography as used on an ongoing basis. We are seeing an escalation to the problem in both men and women who regularly attend church, said Bill Cooper, president of ChristiaNet.com. The poll conducted at ChristianNet.com used a self-selected sample and is therefore not a scientific study. Over a 1,000 users responded to the survey. Additionally, 60% of the women who answered the survey confessed having significant struggles with lust. 40% of, well, maybe you guys can get their phone numbers. I would love 40% to. admitted to being involved in sexual sin in the past year. No one is immunized against the vice grip clutches of sexual addictive behaviors, reads a release issued by the site. What's that site again? Christia, that's Christ with an I-A, net.com. Oh, I get it. The people who struggle with the repeated pursuit of sexual gratification include church members, deacons, staff, and yes, even clergy. I sure hope they don't include those Catholic priests in this, too. They have no passion, so it's okay. Oh. There have been dynamic paradigm shifts in the behavior of Christians over the last four years, explained Jones. Technology has allowed pornography to flood the marketplace beyond a controllable level. It's just everywhere. Jones Ministry provides intervention programs for churches and individuals. So all you Christians out there addicted to porn, you better get involved. What do they Call do, Clay. pour hot wax on it? Call Clay Jones. Yeah, they, they give you waxy buildup. They polish it, they wax it, and they shine it. Here's a BuzzFlash editorial. You ready for this? I'm ready. I like BuzzFlash. And by, before I go into this, let me just tell you right now. You see, if they really were concerned, I mean, they being governments, the powers that be, all these uh, grave robbers, if they really were concerned about air safety? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we already had Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, who, if it weren't for the other passengers, would have certainly blown up the plane and killed all those people. Uh, they didn't check our shoes at all at the uh, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. And my friend had in his bag, uh, and they, they kept announcing, no liquids in flights to the U.S. or the U.K. But other than that, you could do whatever the hell you want. You could, like, pour uh, four gallons of Avion in there if you wanted in your bag. Uh, he had two packs of matches and a lighter, and they didn't check our shoes. You put those two together, wow. what does that tell you? Did they really care? No, it could no. set off a nuke. Yeah, that's for sure. 
Could have blown up the whole airport. Uh, and the same, now, e even the Brits, you'll notice with all these restrictions about liquids, even the Brits don't uh, prohibit uh, lighters. Well, and, uh, and I, guess, I guess maybe that's not true because you have to put your essentials in a plastic bag now. But yeah. up until last Thursday, when this new heightened uh, plot, when the Bush people forced them to uh, release it uh, before they wanted to, because it's good politics, the politics of fear. Uh, at any rate, up until then, there was no restriction on lighters. And In fact, what's the deal now at U.S. airports? And it still is, even though you can't have the liquids, you can pack three packs of matches and three lighters. Well, you might need those. Yeah, because, and of course, that, that was prompted by the tobacco industry because the first thing that smokers want to do when they get off the plane, wherever they're going, and they get out of the airport in the open air, is light up. And God yeah. only knows you have to have at least three packs because the first two might be defective and at least three lighters. Sure. <laughs> so stop for about a half a second and think about that, and that should tell you how really concerned they are about our safety in the air. Just a bunch of bull crap. And as far as the, uh, the thing with the liquids, before any of these stories that I read, 10 years ago, 1996, Ramzi Youssef tried to blow up a plane, a lunatic, in the Philippines. And uh, what he did was he went in the tea room and he put some of the chemicals together. And then he, uh, he hid the explosive uh, in the little bottle, whatever, under uh, some poor Japanese guy's seat, maybe the guy next to him or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then the plane made an intermediate stop at which Ramzi Youssef got off. And then he got off the plane, and he waited till the plane took off again, and he hit his little uh, twanger froggy, and bada-boom, poor Japanese guy got uh, killed. It blew up right under his seat. It did blow a hole in the bottom of the uh, cabin, but other than that, it didn't do any other damage to the plane, and the pilot was able to remember that? Yes, I do. That's ten years ago. Ten freaking years ago. So there's no new, this is nothing new about using liquid explosives, all this crap that they're making people go through now. But at any rate, we'll get into that. You get all kinds of stuff here that gets you all depressed and suicidal. You know something? Maybe that's a good idea. Get yourself before they come and get you, you know? Okay. Because at least, at least you yeah. can do it your way. You know? That'll like work. used to say my way. Gotcha. Might do it the painless way or the painful way or the whatever. Just to do that Russian roulette with all the chambers loaded, with Maryland chambers loaded. Uh-oh, security uh, watch. You can build machines that will read uh, equipment properly. You can put in procedures that... San are, Francisco are Airport spokesman. Like I said, for 10 years they've known about this crap and the liquid the explosives, yada, yada, yada. But, uh, you know, it, may, it makes for good fear now, the fear factor. It's not a TV show. It's a political reality. And then, of course, another thing that we should mention right off the bat, which I'm sure you mentioned, and I mentioned it last time I was on until we got cut off the last 15 minutes there. Oh, look at that, 7-Eleven on the poll. we got 7-Eleven, which you can go to Copenhagen and find one on every street corner. But uh, they don't have to spend a lot of time or energy or money uh, recruiting the terrorists, whatever terrorist organization, because between uh, Ehud Olmert and the Israeli cabinet, the lunatics over there, and George Bush, they're doing all the recruiting that anybody could ever want for Hezbollah, for Al-Qaeda, for uh, whatever. Any terrorist organization du jour. They're recruiting them like crazy. 27 past 10 at QAM. This is Neil Rogers. I'm dying over here. This is 560 QAM. Yeah. Tired of the same old vacation? Then come aboard for the thrills, spills, and near-death excitement of Carnage Cruise Line. Uh -huh. Who needs shuffleboard when you can have a grand piano sliding right at you? Ha! Miss me! <laughs> that was awesome. We'll turn the ship upside down to make your trip unforgettable. Attention, passengers. This is your captain. Grab some railing. Drop a dramamine. I call this move the Poseidon. <laughs> One more time! One more time! Carnage Cruise Line.
Airlines features the only all-you-can-dodge buffet on the high seas. Keeping dish! Eye sculpture! Get ahead! Call your travel agent and book a Carnage cruise today. And coming soon, Carnage presents the Beirut Evacuation Holiday. And coming! 1033 at 560 WQM, my new hero, Keith Oberman. I've been telling you about him for a long time. Yes, you have. He had a show last night on MSNBC. He's on 8 to 9 p.m., by the way, Countdown. That was so good that it just made uh, my spine quiver. Sorry, I missed it. You would have quivered. Even Robin quivered. I'm telling you right now, it was great. And then about from 830 to 845, he documented. He went down the whole list of all these terror alerts that have taken place during uh, the Bush regime. And about the uh, strange coincidences of the timing of all of these terror alerts. Every time things were going really badly for the Bushmeister, which is most of the time, all of a sudden we have another terror alert. Like the New York subway one, which uh, they said, oh, yeah, well, there's nothing to that. It's all BS. But nevertheless, federal government said, well, we better have a, a press conference about this. 723 votes on the poll. What's your take on the announced QM lineup? And now that you folks know what it is, <laughs> what is it? 277. See, they're still voting for what is it. Well, I'm not going to keep repeating it every five seconds, okay? We just told you what it is. Starts August 28th. Who is Kenny Walker, 85? Well, I guess you'll have to tune in and find out. Now, has anybody there heard him on the air? I yeah. kind of doubt it. I have for like a second. And? He's, he's, he's good, I think. I met him the other day, too. He's a good guy. Good guy? Yeah. So you know who we are? Yeah, he took a tour of the studios while I was in Oh, there. and he's still coming to work there? Wow. Must be desperate. Who is Kenny Walker, 86? Big improvement, 76. That's what we like to hear. Let's goose up that morning number, man. It won't take much. It won't take much when you're starting from a... Let's see. Here's one that says, I would like to vote on the poll, but I don't know. Well, too bad, okay? I don't know what the new line is. I just started the show. I told you what it is, okay? You idiot. I'm not going through it again. I'll tell you next hour again. Kimba Camper is coma-inducing 52. Well, there's no doubt about that. I hate this poll 51. What does this have to do with Fidel, 49? He ain't looking too well, Fidel. He ain't looking too swell. No. He looked up at Hugo Chavez and said, I'm dying yeah. over here. I saw that nice but picture of them holding hands. But all that dancing sweet. in the streets uh, has subsided for the time being, George told me down there, so, uh, until he actually croaks. Well, did you see the story about uh, Raul and the fact that they were going to have, uh, he's a cocaine guy, Raul. Who? Which, which one? Fidel's brother. Oh, that Raul. The leader in uh, the temporary leader of your country, right. man. The, uh, the substitute. Right. Yeah. The prostitute substitute. He was, uh, they were going to indict him on cocaine uh, charges. He's in the business. Anyway, it's okay, the new lineup. It's okay, 37. What are they smoking over there, 31? Ask Raul, he'll tell you. Disaster, 27. Well, that's wishful thinking by Joel Feinberg and the crowd of losers across the street who have a minus in front of their numbers now. Nice book there in that spring book, guys. Just beautiful. Won't change a thing, 21, and that's bad. It better change something. And what does this have to do with Israel, 17? Oi! I still say, just, I, I couldn't stop thinking about that. Well, I mean, I was thinking about all of this stuff, because when I was in Amsterdam, you know, I'm watching, uh, all I could watch was BBC and CNN International for uh, eight days, because there's nothing else in English, unless you want to watch the still a Euro sports. And the sports that they got on there, what kind of sports are those? Pseudo sports. But nevertheless, so, um... I kept wondering, how come it is that they're on the verge of this ceasefire, which could have been called right away. It should have been, but the, the Bush people said, oh, no, uh, we're going to send you all those uh, all those uh, weapons and those bunker buster bombs, and you guys, uh, you Cluster know, bombs. Right. And you do it as much as you can, because this is kind of our warm-up for when we go into Iran. Iran. Uh, but nevertheless, 
and they said, oh, well, we can't, we can't ratify the uh, ceasefire, which everybody else was talking about ratifying Thursday night when they finally breathlessly at the U.N. stayed uh, for a cup of coffee in and and, uh, and uh, the U.S. side on, and France side on, and uh, Le- the lesbian E side on, and even Hezbollah said, yeah, we'll stop uh, heaving all them rockets. And the Israelis said, well, we're going to have a cabinet meeting on Sunday. Why on a Sunday? Well, because Friday night they couldn't vote on it because it was Shabbos, man. It's the Jewish Sabbath, Friday night and Saturday. So the message is that we can't have a cabinet meeting and decide to have a ceasefire and bring peace on the Sabbath, but we can keep killing people and dropping uh, bombs and destroying your country and Lebanon on, on the weekend. That, that must be in the Talmud somewhere, don't you think? I'll go look it up. Yeah, look it up. Google it. If you can't see that they're traitors in the White House, then you're risking your own lives and the lives of your families. This is the Buzz Flash editorial from this past Sunday. I take a chance of reading this, assuming you might have already read it on the air. I have not. Oh. As BuzzFlash has repeatedly editorialized, the Bush administration is a detriment to America's national security. Our lives are increasingly at risk every day that they're in office. They will never seriously battle the sources of terrorism in an effective strategic fashion, and that is because politically they need the terrorists as much as the terrorists need them. And the goals of the Bush administration are the consolidation of power and the acquisition of natural resources and economic dominance, not the eradication of terror. Only the naive and the Rush Limbaugh Stepford Red Staters can possibly draw any other conclusion. NBC just confirmed, and this was Sunday, as BuzzFlash editorialized earlier this week about the politics of terrorism, that the White House forced the U.K. to move up the timing of the alleged terror cell arrest against the recommendations of the British intelligence agencies. By doing so, the Bush administration compromised the investigation and kept it from obtaining further evidence and contact names. In short, for purposes of political timing, in order to make partisan points from the election of Ned Lamont, the Bush administration compromised our national security. Furthermore, NBC confirms that U.K. sources indicate that the alleged terrorist plan was not even near operational. Indeed, some of the would-be hijackers didn't even have passports. This is an extraordinary betrayal of America's national security, purely done so so that Cheney, Snow, and Bush could attack the Democrats as weak on national security, knowing that the arrest announcement was going to be made on Wednesday because they picked the day of the arrest. These uses of Rovian time terrorist announcements often extremely, extremely exaggerated, as in the case of the Liberty City Insane Clown Posse and the alleged Manhattan Tunnel explosions that would have defied the laws of gravity if they were planned to flood lower Manhattan, are basically treason. They're meant to frighten Americans into voting Republican. The only viable winning platform are the Bushoviks now, and remember when they can't afford either House or Congress to become Democratic because it would likely lead to investigations and the impeachment and prosecution of the senior Bush administration staff is something like, you see what the terrorists will do if the Republicans aren't here to protect you. The Democrats will just mollycoddle them, fear for your lives, and vote Republican. After six years of cynical rule and five years of alleged war on terrorism that has killed tens of thousands more people than the terrorists have, all the White House has to do is invoke premeditated fear into Americans, and it's worked up to now. Look at the media this week. The alleged British terror plot dominates the leads in television, radio, and newspapers around the nation. Fear is a powerful tool. It goes right from the media into the brain. It appeals to our reptilian sense of self-protection. That's why it's the tool of the demagogues. Yes, there are terrorists out there who wish to do citizens of the U.S. harm, but yes, we also unleash them in Iraq to do us and each other harm. Bush is breeding new ones every day in Iraq and Afghanistan. Bush hasn't reduced terrorism. He's increased its threat. And that's fine with Roe, because Roe has been out front and openly stated through three election cycles that the GOP will win by painting the Democrats as soft on terrorism. The Bush White House and GOP campaign apparatus will lie, cheat, steal, manipulate our emotions, and even carry out policies that breed terrorists because they need terrorism in order to win elections. They would lose in a landslide if people were to vote on public policy issues, so they need fear. It's the only fuel that will help them achieve a one-party dictatorial state for a century, as Grover Norquist and Karl Rove have promised. 
Who is creating a new generation of terrorists? Not the Democrats, except for Joe Lieberman, but he's clearly cut a deal with the White House a long time ago to be one of them and remain a Democrat on foreign policy in name only. Now more than 60% of Americans oppose the war in Iraq. Ned Lamont, a descendant of the robber baron J.P. Morgan, a fourth-generation Harvard graduate and self-made millionaire, is no radical. It's the Bush administration that is radical, extremist, and basically treasonous. At the same time, it was politically manipulating the arrest of the alleged British terrorists. It was trying to decrease that congressional allotment of millions of dollars to increase our ability to detect explosives that could be carried on planes. It's already allowed box cutters, nail clippers, scissors, and razors back on airplanes, not to mention matches. It's done almost nothing to ensure the security of cargo that's shipped on planes, which the Libyan bombing of Pan Am plane over Scotland showed how much of a threat such cargo could be. In short, you don't even need a suicide terrorist to blow up a plane in midair. Bush blew off the warnings of an impending 9-11 and told a CIA briefer who came to him with them to get out, and then used an expletive deleted. Bush then did nothing. He didn't uh, want his vacation disturbed, and then 9-11 happened. And when it did happen, after Bush failed to take steps to protect us, he read Pet Goat for several minutes before his handlers could write comments for him. And then he inexplicably got on Air Force One and flew away from Washington, D.C. As Americans, all of us have our lives at stake when these cynical, power-hungry demagogues are ruling the country. Yes, there are terrorists in the world who wish us harm. Many of them have indeed been drawn to terrorism as a result of Bush administration action. The goals of the White House aren't to stop terrorism. The goal of the White House is to allow terrorism to fester in order to, as is the basic game plan for dictators goes, use fear to consolidate tyrannical power and do away with our constitutional checks and balances of government and guarantee of individual liberties. If you can't see that there are traitors in the White House, then you're risking your own lives and the lives of your families. If you value those lives and your own, we cannot as a nation any longer afford a White House and a Republican Party that only knows the politics of using terrorism as a political tool while running only an ineffective show war to reduce the threat of terrorists. In other words, dog and pony show. That's the editorial from Buzz Flash this past Sunday. 10.43 at QAM. Take good care of those tootsies, baby. If your feet are in good shape, the rest of you probably is, too. And, of course, Brandy Shoes is the place to take the best care of your tootsies because they carry all the top names in the shoe business. They give you friendly personal uh, service to make sure you get the perfect fit every time. And when we say top brands, they got them all. Floorsheim, Echo, Mephisto, Rockport, New Balance, Hush Puppies, tons of other name brand shoes in all sizes for men and women. And they even carry hard, uh, wide widths and hard-to-find sizes, like I said. Go see our buddy Arnie at Brandy, so make sure you get the right-fitting shoes for your feet at the right price every time. Brandy Shoes, you'll find them at 1290 North Federal Highway in Pompano Beach, right between Atlantic and Copens Roads on the east side. You can't miss it. And Brandy's open every day of the week, Monday through Saturday till 9, and every Sunday till 5. And this week is a great time to buy men's and women's famous brands at Brandy's. Selected styles are on sale. You buy one pair, get the second pair at half price. Higher price prevails. Come in or visit uh, Brandy's on the website at brandyshoes.com. This is Neil Rogers. This is 560 QAM. Push the button, Max! They are a legendary cop duo dedicated to cleaning up the streets of L.A. The Jews have got it pinned down! No, 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 Riggs, they're not Jews. The Jews are everywhere! We gotta get some backup to take care of these Jews! No, 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 Riggs, they're not Jews. It's two junkies and a dealer. Damn, Jew junkies! Lethal Weapon 5. Riggs, you all right? You all right? Those three Jews are responsible for all the world's wars. Who, who are you talking about? We're not Jewish. Yeah, and I'm gay. You are? Yeah. Damn gay Jews! Lethal Weapon 5, starring Mel Gibson, Danny Glover, and the return of Joe Pesci as Leo Getz. Hey, Rex, Marta, hey, hey. Hey, Leo. Okay, okay, yeah. 
God, Joe! You crazy! Yeah? God, now! What did you just call me, Riggs? I called you! I thought! Crazy cracker! Lethal Weapon 5. Now playing to ruin Mel Gibson's career. <laughs> All right. Hopefully it will happen very soon. 10.48, 12 minutes before uh, whatever. We got Curtis Stevenson at 2. Geldy at 4. Well, it's nice to come back from vacation and make sure that Geldy's still around, you know? Things just wouldn't be the same without that. Paul Campos in the Rocky Mountain News writes, The politics of cowardice. You're not going to be reading all four hours today, oh, right? Oh, my God. Yes. I already shut that phone thing off of there, man. I shut that screen uh, screen off, that monitor. Josh is busy sitting back watching his big screen HD TV. That's right. And George is sitting there on the edge of his seat, hanging on every one of my words. You know it. Riveted. 765 votes on the poll. We'll make that 1,000 easy today, I believe, especially now that they knew the new lineup. Starting on August 28th. Here it is again for that bozo that sent the fax after I announced it. Starting August 28th, you're going to have still the big O. Oh! 5 to 7 in the morning. And then you got Kenny Walker with the Kimba Bow Camper as, uh, at his side or standing, hovering over him. Is Kenny Walker a big guy or a little guy? Oh, he's about medium-sized guy. Medium guys. Like I said, uh, Kimba will be hovering over him. And they'll be uh, doing a morning show together from 7 to 10 a.m. Kimba Bow Camper and Kenny Walker, let me say it again, who used to be on Y100 with uh, that jackass uh, footy. And then, after us, between 2 and uh, 4, it'll be Mad Dog. I'm by himself where he belongs, 2 to 4. And then from uh, 4 to 7, it'll be Hank. And you're saying, well, how can that be? Well, 2 to 5 and uh, 4 to 7. Because the four to five hour they work together. Then we got the, the Marlins and that crap stuff like that. Eddie K stays right there at 10. That's the new lineup starting on August 28th, which is two weeks from yesterday. And thank God that I'm talking about it because we're certainly not getting any publicity for it anywhere else except Barry Jackass writes about ten words about it there. And Jim Sarney, he's, uh, he's out to lunch. Paul Campos writes the politics of cowardice. He starts out with a quote. Wait till you hear who this quote is from. Not Eisenhower, is it? No. Okay. When it comes to terrorism, much of our political leadership appears to have lost both its nerve and its mind. Consider this statement. I'm worried that too many people, both in politics and out, don't appreciate the seriousness of the threat to American security and the evil of the enemy that faces us, more evil or as evil as Nazism, and probably more dangerous than the Soviet communists we fought during the long Cold War. That's the quote. These words were not uttered by an involuntary resident of a mental hospital or Mel Gibson after a night of pursuing the protocols of the Elder Zion and drinking single malt scotch, but by Ju uh, uh, Joseph Lieberman, the man who's been a senator for the past 18 years and who came within a handful of dangling chads of becoming vice president of the USA, that a statement like this is treated as a reasonable observation rather than denounced as transparently hysterical nonsense indicates the extent to which hysterical nonsense now passes for clear-eyed statesmanship, and that should be far more frightening to Americans than any terrorist threat. At the height of the Cold War, the Soviet Union's explicit goal was to establish a global communist dictatorship. In the pursuit of this goal, Soviets built an army of six million men, equipped with, among many other things, 10,000 nuclear weapons, which in a matter of minutes could have wiped the U.S. off the face of the earth, while perhaps killing 150 million people. By contrast, Osama bin Laden is a guy hiding in a cave somewhere armed with an AK-47 and a tape recorder who commands the uncertain allegiance of a few thousand equally poorly armed fanatics. As for our current enemies being more evil than Nazis, it's hard to imagine what that could even mean. The Nazis managed to murder perhaps 10 million people while starting a war that killed at least 40 million others. In the universal evil sweepstakes, they set a mark that will be hard to match, although it's worth noting that our current good friend and international banker, the People's Republic of China, made an impressive effort of its own during the great leap forward in the Cultural Revolution. Lieberman and his best new friend, Dick Cheney, would respond that the enemy just isn't al-Qaeda. It's something called Islamofascism. 
On this view, despite the enormous political and religious differences that divide them, groups such as Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah and Hamas and the Iraqi insurgents and the governments of Iran and Syria are all part of one big terrifying conspiracy to kill each and every American because they hate our freedoms. Of course, during the Cold War, the enemy wasn't just the USSR or our best, uh, new best friends, the Red Chinese. It was the international communist conspiracy. Yet for all the paranoia that marked the Red Scare, fear of the Soviet Union international communism was far more rational than the current panic over al-Qaeda and Islamo-fascism. At this moment, Osama bin Laden must be howling with laughter. He's a man with no armies to command or weapons to brandish, except for the most powerful weapon of all, fear. More Americans drown in bathtubs every year than are killed by terrorists, and indeed we've reached the point where bin Laden doesn't actually have to kill anybody to achieve his goal of promoting military conflict between the Islamic and Western worlds. Bin Laden and his ilk are merely taking advantage of the politics of cowardice. For example, according to the statement by President Bush that he made on the morning of last week's arrest of terrorist suspects in London, the goal of the war against Islamic fascists is to make Americans completely safe. That absurdities of this sort still play well in the polls is a sad comment on the state of the nation. Yeah, let's go somewhere where we can be safe. How's that? Okay. Like North Dakota. No, don't go there. It's a nasty place. Oh. Won't we be safe? Cold and bleak. 772 votes on a poll. Let's get to that 800 level, and I'll feel more secure about that 1,000, you know. If we don't get to the 1,000, it's gonna, we're going to have to stay on for a long time. Wait till you hear this. Now, this, of course, they're going to say, oh, yeah, it's just more of that uh, prisonplanet.com uh, uh, paranoia. Yeah, right. I don't know if I've got time for this now. I, I guess I better do the break. I don't like interrupting, because, you know, the, you know right. the short attention span of the public. Oh, at, yeah. At best. What did you just say? Right, exactly. That's my point. By the way, how about the thing about the Broward slots? Uh, Fred Grimm says they look like no sure bet. Oh, mm -hmm. boy. I tell you, you people in Florida, man, what a, what a sense of humor. What a, a laugh a minute, a real laugh riot. God. See, there's no point in having an election on anything, whether it's a political election, an election on an issue, bullet train, slots, uh, presidential elections, you name it, class size amendment, because uh, they do whatever the hell they want anyway. And you'll just continue going along, paying your three and a half bucks for a gallon of uh, super unleaded. Put a big smile on your puss and say, okay, just don't kill me. 1056 at 560 WQM. Sometimes it's the things you can't see with your naked eye that are really bad for you down there in the carpets all over your flow. That's correct. But dry concepts can make those carpets not only look fantastic, just like brand new, they'll make them sanitary, too, because they dry clean your carpets. The only ones in the world to do this. They've been doing it in South Florida for over 28 years, including over 21 years in my homes. There is nobody like them. Because when you call dry concepts and have them dry clean your carpets, you really can clean today and entertain tonight. Their exclusive method sucks out even the deepest down dirt in the fibers of your carpets. It, uh, it makes your carpets stay cleaner longer because there's no sticky residue left behind. And as a result, they last longer, too. All of these reasons. All of these, all of these things. things are why they've got over 50,000 satisfied customers all over South Florida. And don't forget the dry concepts, folks, are also the experts in water damage restoration. Keep that in mind during hurricane season, which still has a long way to go. Certified technicians get you out of the mold zone in just a matter of minutes, not days. And dry concepts can get your home or business dry within 24 to 72 hours. It's guaranteed. There is nobody like these folks anywhere. They give you a written guaranteed price up front before they start doing their unbeatable job. And... Even on top of all of these things, Dry Concepts has a state-of-the-art Oriental rug cleaning plant, the only one in all of South Florida on site, dedicated to keeping your expensive area rugs looking brand new, like you just had new laid on your floor. 
So do yourself a big favor. Call Dry Concepts two-day toll-free in Dade, Broward, and the Palm Beaches. They will never let you down. They'll never rip you off either because, like I said, they give it that written guaranteed price up front. 1-800-248-5071. That's 1-800-248-5071. Or on the Wicked Web, it's dryconcepts.com. This is Neil Rogers. Yes. This is 560 QAM. This is the Neil Rogers Show. This is your brain. Any questions? All the powers Also Jewish. Can you tell by that long beard? Oh yeah, you know, Jewish. He just uh, he's circumspect. What? That's what Hugo Chavez says. to pay us up under his hat there. Right, and he's got the. He said uh, more taste, but less to fill in. <laughs> That's why he dresses like that. Nice outfit, Fidel. Anyway, he's not looking too good. You see them pictures? Yeah, he's uh, looking. He's a little off tourist. And although he's in better shape than Ariel Sharon, who's only moments away from official death. He's actually been brain dead for about forty years, Ariel. I think it was that last plate of kishki that put him over the edge. Liquid bomb, Pakistan link, is false flag smoking gun, writes Joseph Watson. Revelations concerning the origins and connections of the alleged liquid bomb terror plot to Pakistan and the 7-7 bombings in London provide a strong indication that the operation, known for months, yet deliberately timed for public release, was a synthetic ruse conducted by the Bush-Blair cabal to repackage the flagging war on terror. Media reports in the days following the alert site Pakistan's ISI as having identified Rashid Rauf as the link between the plots planners and British-based Muslims who were allegedly preparing to carry out attacks on transatlantic flights. According to former NSA official Wayne Masden, the Lakshar-e-Toyba terror group to which Rashid Rauf is affiliated is wholly operated and funded by the Pakistani ISI. The Pakistani ISI is a CIA front 
and controls terror cells at the discretion of the highest levels of the U.S. military-industrial complex. This means that the potential mastermind of the liquid bomb plot, Rashid Raouf, was operating under the oversight and direction of Pakistani and by proxy American intelligence agencies. To understand why the Pakistan link strongly indicates that Thursday morning's terror alert was a manufactured ruse, it is necessary to understand that the nexus that connects Pakistani intelligence to the CIA and terrorist organizations. In October 2001, under the headline, Pakistani intelligence had links to al-Qaeda, U.S. officials say, the New York Times reported, the intelligence services of Pakistan, a crucial American ally in the war on terrorism, have had an indirect but long-standing relationship with al-Qaeda, turning a blind eye for years to the growing ties between Osama bin Laden and the Taliban, according to American officials. The ISI has received CIA funds to create and control militant organizations, including the Taliban and Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. Funds transferred from Pakistan bankrolled the alleged 9-11 hijackers before the attack. Ahmed Umar Sheikh wired $100,000 from Karachi to alleged lead hijacker Mohammed Atta at the behest of ISI chief Mahmoud Ahmad. If this isn't a direct link from the ISI to al-Qaeda, then nothing is. Porter Goss, excuse me, Porter Misha Goss, later appointed as director of the CIA, was having breakfast with a money man behind the terrorist as the planes crashed on the morning of 9-11. Ahmad also had met with top defense and intelligence officials in Washington in the days before the attack, including then-CIA Director George Tenet, Pentagon officials, and White House personnel. The fact that Pakistani financier of the alleged hijackers was meeting with the top brass of the U.S. government in the week before the attack was never investigated by the 9-11 Commission. In addition, alleged 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was repeatedly protected by the ISI, according to Joseph Bodansky, the director of the Congressional Task Force on Terrorism and on Conventional Warfare. Defense Intelligence Agency documents dated from 2001 clearly indicate that the CIA is aware that Pakistan's ISI supports and bankrolls al-Qaeda groups, but they have deliberately chosen to ignore the connection. The rich history of the ISI creation and protection of terrorist cells allied with the fact that the ISA is a known CIA front and added to the revelation that the mastermind of the liquid bomb plot, Rashid Rauf, is under ISI control. It is therefore obvious to conclude that the entire charade was cooked and orchestrated by elements of the Bush Blair cabal and sold as a promotional propaganda tool for the increased surveillance and behavioral control of U.S. and U.K. citizens. At the very least, the terror cell had been fully infiltrated for months. This has already been admitted, and the snap foiling of the attack was coordinated and stage managed for purposes of political grandstanding on the part of Bush, Blair, and the neo-fascist apparatus that seeks to use the ailing justification of the war on terror for a future military incursion into Iran. <laughs> chokes me up just thinking about it. Another dimension to the indication that we're being fed another hoax are reports detailing the alleged plot's links to the 7-7 London bombings. As this website has exhaustively documented for over a year, the 7-7 bombings and the patsies that were used to take the fall for them were controlled and engineered by the British intelligence apparatus. The alleged ringleader of the attack, which targeted three tube trains tube. and one bus, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, was an MI5 informant according to former London Metropolitan Police detective and terror expert Charles Shoebridge. Therefore, in the case of the liquid bomb plot suspects, any link to the London bombers is linked to MI5. It is clear that the scope of the attack has been greatly exaggerated by the British government to maximize fear and subservience engendered by images of alarmed and frightened airline passengers. Doomsday proclamations of ten planes exploding into balls of flames in midair don't correlate with the capacity of the liquid explosives the alleged terrorists were to use. The only other example where terrorists used liquid explosives was the December 1994 Philippines Airline Boeing 747 incident, a dry run for a bigger plot conducted by Ramsey Youssef. In this case, Youssef planted the explosives 
under one of the seats in the airliner and timed them to detonate after he disembarked for a connecting flight. The subsequent explosion killed only one, the Japanese businessman who was sitting directly above the bomb. Uh, there's a little lesson for all you kids out there. Don't sit above a bomb. Okay. Besides five people with minor injuries, the other 200-plus passengers were unharmed and the plane landed safely. Only liquid explosives in large and noticeable amounts can have any literal chance of blowing up a plane in midair. Confiscating pregnant white women's lip gloss is completely insane and proves in itself that the new airport measures are purely designed to act as a PR coup for the police state. In addition... Photographs of passengers being ordered to pour liquids into one single container completely belies the claim that the alleged terrorists planned to mix the liquids to create the deadly explosives. If mixing liquids was a key component of bomb-making process, then why are airport security ordering people to mix liquids? World Affairs Brief Editor Joel Skousen highlights prescient questions about the inconsistency of the properties of alleged liquid explosives in relation to the much-vaunted scale of the foiled attack. The supposed explosive device this time was a peroxide-based explosive, which is mildly explosive and can be prepared from acetone, hydrogen peroxide, and an acid catalyst. This type is claimed by governments to be widely used, widely in use by terrorist groups, though we have no known terrorist events where it's been used, except by one Palestinian terrorist, and then as a detonator, only not as the main charge. This explosive material is usually known in its abbreviation as TATP, triacetone triperoxide. Both peroxide and acetone are clear liquids, but acetone, lacquer thinner, is easily identifiable by smell and its high rate of evaporation. Experts indicate it is very unstable and highly unlikely to be a standalone explosive to take down an airliner. Quantities would have to be large enough to be easily noticed. Thus, even though this is a theoretical threat, banning all cosmetics and lotions is stupid and banning all liquids is unnecessary. Only clear liquids need checking. There's a cheap test equipment for TATP and simple ways for TSA employees to quickly check for acetone and peroxide. Returning to how the latest plot is a mirror image of Operation Bojinka, the Ramsey Yusef link is also telling because Yusef has been protected and coddled by the U.S. government at every juncture. In September of 1992, Yusef entered the U.S. with Ahmed Ajaj. Ajaj's luggage contained documents on how to make bombs and was stuffed with fake passports and IDs. Ajaj was arrested and amazingly, Yusef was released. Yosef later masterminded the World Trade Center 93 bombing with the gracious help of FBI agents. Having penetrated the group before the bombing, the FBI's mole, Imad Salem, was told to arm the terrorist cell with dummy explosives so a sting operation could ensnare the perpetrators. Salem was mystified when the orders changed. The sting was called off and the FBI allowed the bombing to go forward. This was all admitted in October 1993 New York Times front page story. Again, any Operation Bojinka or Ramsey Yosef link in the case of the liquid bomb plot is a link back to Western intelligence agencies. Within three days of its exposure, Tony Blair and MI5 are already milking the alleged plot for political purposes and reintroducing the argument for 90-day detention without charge legislation. Blair suffered his only defeat to date in the Commons last November when the bill was shot down by labor rebels, a humiliating rejection of the so-called liberal government's feverish bloodlust for authoritarian control. Reports of criminal insider trading on airline stocks before the announcement of the alleged foil plot, specifically British Airways stock, have also started to filter in and will be the subject of a follow-up investigation. Mm -hmm. Sound familiar to you? Oh, yeah. Too bad we don't know the names of the people who were buying up all those who were shorting all those airline stocks back uh, before 9-11. That'd be something. Now, what is this fast you just sent me? Is this something important? Uh, no, yada, yada. Love your show for your pull. QMF. Oh, yeah, well, we know that. Letting Joe Rose go perfect for morning drive. Well, he was doing 8 to 10 in the morning and doing big numbers, and Greg Reed just screwed, you know, Greg Reed screwed up the radio station. Now, poor Joe Bell had to go through a lobotomy, a complicated surgery that involved his brain and his unit, and uh, some, something to do with piecing them together. I don't know what that's all about. 
to try to like well no, to try to uh, recuperate from the trauma of putting uh, Greg Reed's mess back together again. Not an, not an easy job. August 28th, we do it, baby. We debut our new lineup. What do you think? Here's the poll. 801 votes, by the way. Not too bad. Oh, look at Heathrow, man. After the threat level oh, that can't be now, can it? The These poor bastards. Wow. Don't ever go to England, man. Stay the hell out of there. Oh, no, this is uh, old stuff. 801 votes. What's your take on the announced the new QM lineup, which I, we already read you twice, and that's, if you don't know it by now, too bad. Kenny Walker and Kim Volkamper and the Mad Dog and Hank and uh, yours truly, and that's it. 801 votes. What is it? 306. They're still voting. What is it? Well, you better read it again, George. Okay. Who is Kenny Walker, 91? Is he one of the Walker brothers, you think? Oh, that's a good question. I'll ask Because your son ain't going to shine anymore. I think time is on his eye, too. Oh. Who is Kenny Walker, 91? Big Improvement, 78. All right. I think the fact that they're saying Big Improvement means they agree Hank belongs back in the afternoon, which, of course, we already knew that. Could have told that to Greg. Kimber Camper is coma-inducing, 56, but that's as in Q56. He fits right in, like a rubber glove. I hate this pull, 56. What does this have to do with Fidel, 55? He's dead. Uh, it's okay, 41. Well, and Catherine Harris, oh, my God, did you hear about her on it? Speaking of uh, explosive planes? No, what happened? Can't tell you. It's okay, 41, the new, uh, the new lineup. Won't change a thing, 37. What are they smoking, 34? Well, George has brought in some good stuff. Disaster, 28. And what does this have to do with Israel? Solamente 19. How do you say that? Dies in Nueve? This is Neil Rogers. This is 560 QAM. Howard David's a bitch. This station presents What If They Were Alive Today? August 16th, 1977, Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, is found dead at his Graceland home in Memphis, Tennessee. He changed music forever, but we ask... What if he were alive today? Hello, baby, this year's Elvis Presley. You know, I used to buy people Cadillacs. Well, now I get all my friends one of these, a hover-around mobility chair. Yeah, baby, I just love riding around on mine with my cape blowing in the breeze. So order yours now and tell them the king sent you. I got a hover, hover, hover around. I got a hover, hover, hover around. Join us again for another What If They Were Alive Today. I think there's some programming idea there for you uh, for tomorrow. Okay. August 16th, it's the 29th anniversary of Elvis's death. Oh, yeah, and Elvis' music show. What do you think? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll be all over that. We know our audience just loves Elvis. Oh, yeah. I'm dying out of here. Or maybe in honor of we could do it the rest of the show today. What do you say? Sure, be a lot okay. more entertaining than me reading these newspaper stories on yeah. here and not taking any of those real calls. I bet you Tom Jicker just hates this show like poison now. Well, guess what? We hate you too, Tommy. It's too bad. Yeah, well, this, uh, you know, how's that going to work? He's so out of touch. Uh, yeah. Touch this. Go go back to Lesbanon with your local yokel TV people. Now, that, that's, uh, that thing about Wayne Chandler is very sad. What a good guy. Yes, it is. At any rate, moving right along. I've got a lot of fish to fry here, baby, and i got that, that one article that's going to take me six hours to read. I may collapse before I finish reading it. By Bill Christensen. Or is that Christ? Christ's son. Is that how you say that? Sure, no. why not? For, he's a uh, former CIA analyst. He's a uh, former guy, CIA guy. At any rate, he writes, uh, stop belittling the theories about 9-11. I'm not going to get to that yet, though. <laughs> I'm teasing it. 
And luckily, thank the Lord, that's the most read story so far today on our website. It's very disheartening to me, like for yesterday, the stories I put on there, including some really very important ones. And what's the most read story yesterday, Josh? Man picks wrong spot when nature calls. About Is there any doubt? Yeah, peed in the wrong place, you know. It's just, just amazing to me, you people. It's just, uh, there's right. no hope. So what place did he, did he pee? I, you're going to have to read the story. Oh, okay. I mean, a story that I just read about the liquid bomb Pakistani link is a false uh, flag smoking gun, and yada, yada, yada. That, that's, I mean, that's got over 200 people read it so far this morning, but uh, it's a uh, week fourth place. You know, the story about the Bush couldn't beat Kerry Gore, even his own father now, only 202 uh, reads. But the guy peed in the wrong spot. If it's got to do with peeing or dumping or it's got a four-letter word in it, man, they, get, they got there all over it like stink on Greg, like stink on Joyce. Seymour Hirsch says... And by the way, you know, I hate to break the news to you, Chris Matthews on CNBC or MS or whatever you're on. Nobody wants to hear what Chris Matthews has to say. When he's got somebody important like Seymour Hersh on there, somebody ought to take the duct tape from back in 9-11 days and just put it around Chris Matthews' mouth. He never shuts up. Ba, 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 ba. And he'll ask a question, and then just as the guest is about to start to answer the question, then he starts adding on to it. You know? and, and not only that, but what do you think about it? Joe Lieber, uh, you know, shut up. That's the message to Chris Matthews on MSNBC. And Keith Oberman, by the way, I think ought to be the president. Okay. Well, at least Let's he's got it. a sense of humor and sure. he tells it like it is. Too bad nobody watches that show. Now, are you watching? How come you're not watching him anymore? It's just a bad time. There's uh, usually stuff going on in my life at well, that time of the evening. Winding up dinner, playing with children, yeah. uh, getting marauded by the family. Poisoning like your wife's pudding. Stuff, little things like things that. Things like that. Seymour Hersh says, U.S. involved in Israeli plans to invade Lebanon. Was there any doubt? Didn't I tell you that? Yes, you did. This whole thing was cooked up by, encouraged by, and promoted by. And you see, all these diversionary tactics, they're blowing up in Bush's face. No pun intended. Right. In other words, we've got to divert, get that thing with all the bloodbath of civil war in Iraq off the front pages. Well, it worked. Then we went to the, uh, all the uh, bloodshed and the horror in uh, Lebanon. That, that was on the front pages. And then that turned into a disaster. That worked out really, really bad. Lots of innocent dead people on both sides. And Lebanon torn to shreds again. Just just absolutely declawed. And then that didn't work out so well. So now we got the terror alert has to be issued early so that we can get the uh, Lebanon thing off the front page. It worked. In an article for the New Yorker magazine, renowned investigative journalist Seymour Hersh states that the Bush administration was closely involved in last month's invasion of Lebanon by Israel. Raw story has learned. Hirsch describes the administration's initial reaction to the invasion as strangely passive, with George W. Bush saying on July 16, it's a moment of clarification, and condom please Rice stating two days later that a ceasefire should wait until the conditions are, the conditions are conducive, or is that the conditions are conducive, bitch. She, by the way, I don't know if you've been reading the stories, but she was the one that got the president's rear ear? No. Yeah, on this, on this particular issue. I see. Like, let's, uh, let's uh, wait. Let's let him kill as many of them Hezbollahs as we can. She was the one. In spite of everybody else was saying to him, going to be a lot of, uh, it's going to make you look really bad. A lot of innocent Lebanese are going to die. A lot of uh, horrible things are going to happen, like that convoy that got bombed. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, they shouldn't have attacked Israel. But condom pleaser, that's right. They shouldn't have attacked us, just like Iraq shouldn't have attacked us. Just like that wedding party in Iraq two years ago shouldn't have attacked us. That's why the U.S. Uh, forces bombed the wedding party, so 40 people died. See, if the, if the wedding would have gone along as planned, they would have reproduced, and there would have been more Iraqi terrorists. So there's probably a method in our madness. 
Hirsch's intelligence and diplomatic sources tell him that the reason for this hands-off reaction was that George Bush and Dick Cheney already knew about Israeli plans for a bombing campaign against Hezbollah's underground missile complexes and were convinced that it could both increase Israel's security and serve as, here comes the big part, and serve as a prelude to an American preemptive attack on Iran's nuclear installations. Oh, boy. The White House also wanted Hezbollah stripped of the ability to retaliate against Israel in the wake of an American attack on Iran. As one U.S. government consultant told Hirsch, the Israelis told us it would be a cheap war with many benefits. Why oppose it? We'll be able to hunt down and bomb missiles, tunnels, and bunkers from the air. It'll be a demo for Iran. Oh, worked great, didn't it? Uh-huh. God, it was fabulous. The White House and National Security Council have denied knowing in advance about Israel's plans. However, Hirsch's sources made it very clear that Israel shared its plans with the Americans this past spring and received strong encouragement. Israeli military and intelligence experts acknowledged the American support, but insisted to Hirsch that Israel had acted against Hezbollah solely on the basis of its own interest and not as an agent of American policy. Right. Richard Armitage, who served as Deputy Secretary of State during Bush's first term, suggested that the White House should take the Israeli example as a reason to re-examine its plans for Iran. If the most dominant military force in the region, the IDF, can't pacify a country like Lebanon with a population of 4 million, you should think really carefully about taking that template to Iran with strategic depth and a population of 70 million. That's what Dick said. But sometimes Bush ain't listening to Dick. I understand. Henry Porter writes, oh boy, I just got so much good stuff here. Too bad nobody cares about any of these things. Yeah, what are you going to do? Read it. Good. <laughs> oh, before we do that, though, the thing about the Broward slots, this just this is the epitome of what South Florida is all about. This is one more good reason to stay far away from that place. Fred Grimm, who occasionally writes something worth uh, reading, actually. Nice going, Freddie. He says, the soaring steel skeleton of the new Racino could pass for an abstract iron sculpture. The giant curving roof beams over a grid of parallel bars make Pompano Park's old green and white grandstand next door look as dowdy as Aunt Millie. What are they going to do with that? Take it down like an erector set? Asked one of the track's afternoon regulars, nodding at the unfinished building. The ponies don't run again at Pompano Park until Labor Day, but the regulars come anyway, most of them men, most of them on the arthritic side of middle age, to place bets and watch simulcasts as a races from New York and Jersey. One was shouting at the video screen like his horse could hear him. Go, 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 baby! But the big bet around here is the $150 million expansion underway at the old harness track. Don't look like such a sure thing anymore, said a gambler in a Dolphins T-shirt, not anxious for his newspaper-reading wife to learn where he spends his afternoons. <laughs> the regulars were miffed by a decision from the First District Court of Appeals in Tallahassee on Tuesday, raising doubts about the legality of the 2004 referendum that allowed Broward and Dade voters to decide whether they wanted slot machines in their parimutuel places. Dade subsequently voted no, but Broward said yes. Jess, excuse me, Jess. The prospect of slots has transformed Broward's aging, faltering, nearly pathetic paramutuals into sizzling investments. Hundreds of millions of dollars are pouring into the Racinos, but it's no sure thing, Fred writes. The appeals court decision sent a lawsuit back to a Leon County Circuit judge who dismissed a claim that the petition that triggered the 2004 initiative was full of fraudulent signatures. The circuit judge had originally ruled that the election allowed voters to cure any problems with the petition, apparently not. The case is bound to win its way to the Florida Supreme Court. If the paramutuals lose all their appeals, then it goes back to trial in Leon County. We're talking months, even years, while the big bet in Broward just gets bigger. But the possibility looms that Broward could end up with four very glitzy racinos without a slot machine in sight, man. Gulfstream Park, in the midst of a $140 million renovation, has been transformed from a track that was surviving with race day concerts by over-the-hill rock and roll has-beens into a track with the grandest of grandstands. 
In May, a gambling conglomerate paid $152 million to the old high-life fronton in Dania Beach and promised to invest another $75 million to make slot players comfy. The old Hollywood Greyhound track is being transformed into Mardi Gras racetrack and gaming. $20 million spent so far and millions more to come. Horses, dog players, and high-life players all seem like afterthoughts in these new environs, but it may all be a bad bet. John Panetta, known around Pompano Park as Jersey John, raged, A vote is a vote. The people of Florida voted on this, and the Bushes want to do the same thing they did six years ago when voted for president. The regulars complain that judges sleep in the conservative, religion-minded rural culture of North Florida. Steeped in the conservative, religion-minded rural culture of North Florida would be deciding whether South Floridians would be able to play the slots. Gambling's everywhere, said Jimmy Messina. The real question is whether they're going to tax it or not. Messina just shook his head at the prospect that the 2004 vote could be undone in the redneck end of the state. He said, what would they do if this place, if this all falls, uh, fail, falls through? I just don't think. Blank, blank, blank. And just kind of trailed off in a, like, like, like that. Of course, track regulars are intimately familiar with a bad bet. Just not the $150 million kind, says Fred Grimm. How do you like that, huh? Uh-huh. So if you're looking for a good machine, man, oh, look yeah, that. There's, there. there's all the lesbianese on CNN, man, and Hezbollah, and, and uh, some uh, zillions of recruits, thousands and thousands of new recruits. Nice going, uh, Ehud. 29 past 11 at 560 WQM. Going back to school can be a little rough for the kids, and a good night's sleep is critical for the development of healthy minds. Wow, what an intellectual spot. If your kids are having trouble adjusting to school night bedtime, it may be just their mattress. Call Dial-A-Mattress at 1-800-MATTRESS. Dial-A-Mattress can recommend a mattress for kids of any age. Have the new bed delivered the date and time that you choose, just like always, seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Just give Dial-A-Mattress a two-hour window when it's convenient for you or your kids or whoever's going to get it. They can even deliver your mattress the very same day that you call. Call 1-800-MATTRESS right now and get the absolute best selection of Sealy and Serta, Simmons, King Coil, Tempur-Pedic, and Stearns Bananas Foster. Check for low prices online at mattress.com or call Dial-A-Mattress right now, toll-free at 1-800-MATTRESS. I've been using them for years and years, and when the old mattress is lumpy and bumpy, there's no better and smarter way to do a piece of shopping than just sit there on your fat ass and make that one easy call. Call them right now. You can be sleeping like a baby as soon as tonight. 1-800-MATTRESS, 1-800-M-A-T-T-R-E-S. Leave off the last S because it stands for stupid, Sarner. This is Neil Rogers. <laughs> This is 560 QAM. At 30,000 feet, nothing can prepare you for one song. Snacks on a plane. Combos, bugles, honey roasted peanuts, potato chips, Samuel L. Jackson. Now, this is a tasty corn chip. Snacks on a plane. I want these mother cheese nips off this mother plane. Snacks on a plane. 140 calories per serving. It's 11.35 at 5.60 WQM. Happy Tuesday to you. This uh, uh, email that you just sent me with this Bush video, this has got to go on our website immediately, if not much sooner. I'll send it to Eric. But uh, my question is to you. Sure. Uh, wait a minute. One moment. One moment, please, because I can't put it on the air. <laughs> I haven't listened to it yet. I just watched it. Oh, uh, well, I can. <laughs> it, I know. That's what I'm... Don't do it yet. I can't Close your eyes and make it go away. How long? How long? We stay this long. How long? 
<laughs> this, is, this may be the best thing we've uh, ever, ever had on the website. A fine job by somebody. Yeah, by somebody. Thanks to whoever uh, sent this along. I got a couple of copies uh, sent to me. Once things like this get out, you know how that goes. Oh, yeah. They're all over the place. Anyway, uh, you want to play the audio on this? Oh, this uh, you is know, George I would. Bush. I would, but now I'm buffering. Remember, you're the one with the good uh, internet connection. Stop suffering, take buffering. Is that what you just said? Yeah. Okay. 844 votes on our poll. What's your take on the announced new WQM lineup that begins, that debuts two weeks from yesterday, Monday, August 28th? What is it, 315? Well, at least that's slowed down to a crawl now that I've read it 15 times what the new lineup is. Who is Kenny Walker, 97? Excellent question. <coughs> Big improvement, 86. Oh, thank God. Boy, finally there's like a little a little hope for us, you think? Mm -hmm. To have a lead in with more than a .1 share? Kimba Bocamper is coma-inducing 59. Not That didn't sound too promising, although we do know that. What does this have to do with Fidel, 58? He's dead. Um, I hate this poll, 58. Won't change a thing, 45. It's okay. Not great, but okay. Okay. 42. In other words, they're open-minded. They'll give it a shot. You know, if, you, if you're not sure, just give it a shot. What are they smoking over there, 37? Disaster, 28. That's the worst for There's a lot of talk about this next song. Oh, it just came on. That's okay. Let it go. And what does this have to do with Israel 19? You got, this is something to see, too, though. It, it sounds good, but it looks better. I know. You're right. I can't believe the news you made. I can't close my eyes and make it go away. Come on. Come on. Let me sing this song. Come on. Too, too, too long. Too long. Tonight, we can be as one. Tonight, Your heart out, Mono. Tonight. Broken bottles under children's feet. Bodies turn across the desert. But I won't need the battle hall. It puts my back up, puts my back up against the wall. Sunday, bloody Sunday. Sunday, bloody Sunday. Sunday, bloody Sunday. Sunday, bloody Sunday. Let's roll. I'm going to run out of buffer room, so I'm going to fade it out here. What do you mean you're going to run it's out of buffer room? It's going to catch up with itself and, uh, and stop again, because I have a slow internet connection over here, as you know. Oh, my God. Well, there's a little tease for you, okay? But like you said, you got to really see the video. Yeah. I uh, send it to Eric, so. To get the full impact. Yeah, Eric will get that on there faster, and you can say, to what a full moron. impact. Yeah. Well, let's see. I got, uh, I, don't let me forget. Because it's going to take me about four hours to read that article oh, about... Oh, by the way, be, speaking of Don't Let You Forget, yeah. Boca Bryan yeah. found the video that you're talking about, the Keith Olbermann thing. He did? On, on Crooks and Liars, and I'll be sure and send the appropriate link to all interested parties you included. You mean from last night's show? From last night's show, the video of it. It's on the Internet, man. Everything is. All right. Wow. All right. That chicken act, when you least expect it, man, he, uh, pulls it, he comes through. He's full of surprises. You have no He's idea. He's full of it, all right. Wow. Yeah, Keith Olbermann, MSNBC, 8 to 9 p.m. Okay, that's the only place you're going to get any truth. Forget about that daily show, okay? That's, that's a bunch of guys sitting around trying very hard to be funny, and usually they're not. But Olbermann, last night, when he laid out all of those, it, it was just so beautiful the way that they did it, too. Obviously, he's got, you know, unlike us, <laughs> he, he actually has a staff of people that research stuff and like, oh, put yeah. it together. <laughs> yeah, like, like a real show, you know. But then again, we're doing okay. We're not missing any meals. Last time I checked. Plus, I found that good machine yesterday again. What a nice comeback from uh, my marginal trip with that crappy weather over there. Found another good machine. There came that 3,000 on the line again. I think, Josh, it's a good thing that's probably not getting the slots. I'm not saying they're not, but if they don't, it'll be good for Josh, because he, he's one of those people with an addictive personality. 
That's yeah, right. Yeah, that's it. That's me. No, I'm, I'm serious. It would be really bad because your buddy won the ten grand there that time, and all you need to do is get started. Oh, I, I do have one little short thing to interject here. I remember when the uh, everybody remembers when they got all whipped up the uh, ragheads about those uh, cartoons <laughs> and that Danish uh, Weekly Reader, whatever that thing was, that mm-hmm. throwaway, all right. whipped up, and people died because of it because you're not supposed to depict uh, Mohammed and the other all this other crap, and it was disrespectful. Well, you can be disrespectful to anybody else, and so an exhibition of more than 200 cartoons about the Holocaust opened yesterday as Iran's response to last year's Muslim outrage over a caricature of the Prophet Muhammad in that Danish news rag. The display, showing 204 entries from Iran and abroad, was strongly influenced by the views of Iran's hardline president, Mahoud Ahmadinejad, who drew wide... See how easily I say that now? Wow, I still can't who drew widespread condemnation last year for calling on the Holocaust a myth and saying that Israel should be destroyed. One cartoon by Indonesia, and by the way, I just ought to mention this in passing, although I certainly don't want to get up any of our Zionist buddies upset out there, but uh, Hamas and Hezbollah were both created by Israel. There, there's no question about that. that. That's a fact. But nevertheless, one cartoon by Indonesian Tony Thomdine shows the Statue of Liberty holding a book on the Holocaust in its left hand and giving a Nazi-style salute with the other. Sounds, sounds like something Mel Gibson would have thought of. Was that the bent arm up a Nazi salute or the one straight out at an angle? The one kind of like, uh, that's, if you notice the old documentary footage, sometimes Hitler, I guess it all depended on how, much we, he had, how many Wheaties he had for breakfast. Right. I think morning. there's a formal salute and a casual salute. Sometimes the arm is like straight out. Other times mm-hmm. it's like at a uh, kind of halfway like saying, uh, sky. Sig high. Yeah. No, I think in, in one of the uh, documentaries I saw, I'm not sure because the audio wasn't real clear, but he was saying, Hi, Pally. One cartoon, yeah, Masoud Shojai, director huh? of the host caricature house, said a jury looked through 1,200 entries received after the contest was announced in February by the co-sponsor, the Iranian newspaper Hamshari. Well, at least they got a sense of humor over there about everybody else. Not about them, everybody else, especially no. the Jews, but not necessarily. 18 to noon at QAM. This is Neil Rogers. Oh, this is 560 QAM. Joker, in the light of the Batcave, your green hair really sets off your purple suit. It's actually plum, but thank you, Keku Theater. Batman Mountain, with Christian Bale as Batman and Heath Ledger as the Joker. I wish I knew how to quit you, Joker. I wish I knew how to get that utility belt off. Stately Wayne Manor just got a makeover. Holy queer eye, Batman! You and the Joker sure know how to make time pass down here in the Batcave. Well, Robin, um, uh, we're just spiel. Lunking buddies. <laughs> right, Joker? Don't worry, Boy Wonder. There's enough room on that bat pole for both of us. <laughs> Batman Mountain. You can fight crime, but you can't fight your true identity. Let's enter the Batmobile in the Gotham Pride Parade. So let me ask you this. Have we got that Keith Oberman thing, uh, the link to it? Is there any way we can get it on our website? Yeah. I'm no, talk, not talking about the whole hour, are we? I'm, I'm talking about that 15-minute segment, which I'm sure that Chicken Neck knows what I was talking about. Yes. What it is is the, uh, let me what see the is. running time, the 12 minutes. Oh, that's it. It's a 12-minute segment, Olbermann, the nexus of politics and terror. That is it. Oh! All right. Keith runs down the timeline from 2002 until the latest UK plot regarding the politicalization, did I say that right? Politicization of terror, politicking, etc., and so on and so forth. Excellent. So Eric's already got it in his uh, hands. He's got it in his hands. How about the story? That too. 
Henry Porter in the Brit paper. Can I tell you the best paper that I have ever read in my life? What's the best paper not you've ever Guardian, read in your not life? Not the Observer, but the, uh, the Independent, the Sunday Independent on Sunday, the British paper. Okay. I took that paper on a plane for the trip back, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, you can sit there and read for like uh, two hours. I mean, it's, there just are actually things to read in there, like a real newspaper. What a concept. You can just like the uh, Herald. <laughs> The land of the free, but free speech is a rare commodity, writes Henry Porter. He says, you can say what you like in the U.S. just as long as you don't ask awkward questions about America's role in the Middle East. It used to be said that academic rows were vicious because the stakes were so small. That's no longer true in America, where a battle is underway on campuses over what can be said about the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. Doug Giles is a recent casualty. He used to teach a class on world religions at Roosevelt University, Chicago, founded in memory of Franklin Roosevelt and his liberal-inclined wife, Eleanor, that dyke. Last year, Giles was ordered by the head of his department, art historian Susan Weininger, not to allow students to ask questions about Palestine and Israel. In fact, nothing was to be mentioned in class, textbooks, and examinations that could possibly open Judaism to criticism. Students, being what they are, did not go along with the ban. A young woman, originally from Pakistan, asked a question about Palestinian rights. Someone complained, and Professor Giles was promptly fired. Leaving aside his boss's doubtful qualifications to set limits on a class of comparative religion, especially his early 20th century Midwestern artists such as Tunis Ponzin, and it says, neither have I, meaning, who's that? I haven't heard of him, and neither have I. The point to grasp is that Professor Giles did not make inflammatory statements himself. He merely refused to limit debate among the young minds in front of him. This might be seen as a troubling one-off like the story involving the president of Harvard, Lawrence Summers, who suggested that innate differences between the minds of men and women could be one reason why fewer women succeed in science and math careers and then was ousted. But Giles sacking is far more important because it's part of the movement to suppress criticism of Israel on the grounds that it's anti-Semitic. A mild man, Giles seems astonished to find the battle for free speech in his own lecture theater. It may be sexy to get on a bus and go to D.C. and march against the war, he said to me last week, but it is much less sexy to fight in your own university for the right of free speech. But that's where it begins. That's because they're taking away what you can talk about. He feels there's a pattern of intolerance in his sacking that's been encouraged by websites such as FrontPageMag.com and Campus Watch. Joel Bynan of Stanford University is regularly attacked by both. Bynan is a Jew who speaks both Hebrew and Arabic. He worked in Israel and on an assembly line in the U.S. where he helped Arab workers understand their rights. Now he holds seminars in Stanford in which all views are expressed. For this reason, no doubt, his photograph recently appeared on the front of a booklet entitled Campus Support for Terrorism. It was published by David Horowitz, the founder of FrontPageMag.com, who has both composed a Bill of Rights for Universities designed to take politics, for which read liberal influence and plurality, out of the curriculum, and listed the hundred most dangerous academics in America, which includes Noam Chomsky and many other distinguished thinkers and teachers. The demented bullying tone of the websites is another symptom of the descent of public discourse in America, and frankly, one can easily see the attractions of self-censorship on the question of the Middle East and Israel. Read David Horowitz for longer than five minutes, and you begin to hear Senator Joseph McCarthy accusing someone of un-American activities. At Harvard, a few weeks after what was called Sumner's misstep, a much greater row ensued when John Mearsheimer of the University of Chicago and Stephen Wald of Harvard published a paper called The Israel Lobby, brave because the alleged distortion of U.S. pro-Israel foreign policy is unmentionable in American public life. Their paper was printed only in the U.K. in the London Review of Books. In America, then, there followed what's been described as the massive Apart from the mudslinging from sites such as Campus Watch and Front Page Mag, it had little mainstream circulation, and there's been no real debate. 
I've read it several times and cannot disagree with an early point made by the authors. There is a strong moral case for supporting Israel's existence, but that is not in jeopardy. Viewed objectively, its past and present conduct offers no moral basis for privileging it over the Palestinians. That's the crux. All Americans, to say little of the British who've been reluctantly welded the U.S. policy, surely deserve the chance to know about the influence that lobbies such as APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, exert at times like these. The bottom line, say Mearsheimer and Walt, is that APAC is a de facto agent for a foreign government, has a stranglehold on Congress, with the result that U.S. policy is not debated there, even though the policy has important consequences for the entire world. In other words, one of the three main branches of the government is firmly committed to supporting Israel. Later, they say, the lobby's influence causes trouble on several fronts. It increases the terrorist danger that all states face, including America's European allies. It has made it impossible to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a situation that gives extremists the powerful recruiting tool, increases the pull of potential terrorists and sympathizers, and contributes to Islamic radicalism in Europe and Asia. You could add that the lobby's influence may in the long run be very much against Israel's interests. That is my belief, but these things are rarely discussed in America. People look vaguely queasy when you raise the subject of the Israeli lobby, as though the only concern in American discourse is not to appear anti-Semitic, a fear which I suggest is sometimes shamelessly played upon. The right of people like Mearsheimer, Walt, Bynan, Giles, and even Summers to say what they think must remain inviolate if we're not to lose the values of what the West insists it's fighting for. A little boldness is called for on both sides of the Atlantic to discuss the pressure coming from both Jewish and Muslim quarters not to discuss issues openly because of various sensibilities. In Britain, we should deplore with equal vehemence the temptation to give in to special pleading from, for instance, the Muslim businessmen who don't want the film of Monica Ali's Brick Lane made in their area. They have no right to dictate to this ancient democracy of ours, now theirs, and so stifle free expression. Last week, during Jon Snow's fascinating documentary about Muslim attitudes in England, a woman said that British society was too decadent for her to allow her children to integrate completely. A moment's thought suggested that British democracy had much to offer over the appalling civic values found in most Muslim countries, the oppression of women in Islam, the untold domestic abuse, and, t of, and the tens of thousands of children sold into bonded labor in Pakistan, her husband's country of origin. Her prim separatism fails to grasp the value of our democratic institutions when set against societies run by Sharia law and so undermines them. My view is that in America and Britain, we should think of free speech as an article of faith, as one of the ways that we define our civilization against the forces that were to be unleashed on us this week, as well as the influences that stifle criticism of Israel and so enable the disgraceful actions in South Lebanon. The interests of extreme proponents of Muslim and Jewish faiths combine in one way or another to assault our ancient democratic traditions, and we must resist them. Let the students like those in Doug Giles' class ask whatever they like. Excellent. Pretty good, huh? You Jew hater. <laughs> what did you think of that? That's by Henry Porter in the Sunday Observer, the Brit paper, the Observer. You want to read the good comms, most of them are in the Brit papers. The Guardian, the Observer, the Independent. Trust me when I tell you, or not. So how's that the thing coming on our website? That's pretty exciting. We've got two uh, things for the price of Eric one. Eric has acknowledged the receipt of them, and I'm sure he's working feverishly on them now. Heavy, heavy duty, which if you eat at McDonald's often enough. That's right. Heavy, heavy stuff. So, and, of course, the Bush thing, that's going to get 8 million, 8 million mm -hmm. people are going to watch that. Sunday, bloody Sunday. By the way, did you ever see that movie with Peter Finch? No. It's a little no. bit too gay for either one of you. Trust me. Is it about the Super Bowl bombing thing? No. Oh. It's about gay. Oh. Peter Finch is a doctor, and a guy comes to him. It's, it's a British movie. I see. And the guy comes to him who uh, goes both ways. I see. Got it? North and south? North, south, east, and west. And he likes uh, it the best. At any rate, uh, Peter Finch becomes more than his doctor. He kind of like 
nurses them back to health. I see. What nurses? You don't want to, you, you don't want to see it, believe yeah. me. No, no, too, I don't. Uh, Yay for you. And definitely Josh don't want to see it because he'll never be the same again. He'll never recover from it. I did see the uh, Great Santini. Yeah, I heard that. And? Um, I, I don't know how to put my review other than uh, I hate the Great Santini. Uh, the, the character. The guy. Uh, um, but yeah. I, I can't Robert figure out Duval. if they liked the movie because they make... His I, name was uh, Bull Meacham. Wasn't that his name in the movie? Yes. yes. Bull Meacham. Oh, what yeah. a man. I thought you were going to say something else, though. Schmidt? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he's coming up at four. Don't say that. That's, 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 a, that's a nasty shot. 879 votes on the poll. I don't know. Are we going to make that thousand or not? We better get moving, man. I'm starting to get just a little bit nervous. This is Neil Rogers. This is 560 QAM. This is And this portion of the Neil Rogers 12 to 1 hour is brought to you by the Leaded 12. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 slices of pizza. All for me! J.J. Jackson, Nina Black, with Martha Quinn, Cindy Lopper, Kaja Pulu, and Berlin, and Tony Basil, Simple Minds, Duran Duran. When we were children, we used to love them. MTV made the video stars, now no one knows just who they are. So Bill Christensen is, see, sooner or later, you knew I'd get around to this, didn't you? Good. Former senior official of the CIA. He was a national intelligence officer and director of the CIA's Office of Regional and Political Analyzation before he retired in 1979. Since then, he's written numerous articles on U.S. foreign policy, including this one, which is on our website, by the way, for today. Former CIA analyst, stop belittling the theories about September 11th. And this is what he writes, and it goes on for uh, hours. However horrendous the crimes of two of the world's great liars and terrorists in Gaza and Lebanon, it is imperative that we not let the deeds of Ehud Olmert and George W. Bush distract us from another recent event. The U.S. alliance with Israel and the power of the lobby that lets Israel so easily influence U.S. foreign policy have been major factors in allowing the monstrous slaughter of innocent civilians in Gaza and Lebanon. What is happening in these lands may also encourage Olmert and Bush to start new hostilities in Syria and 
heavy possible nuclear bombings in Iran, and this entire mess of neocon pottage may lead to a new world war and clashes of civilizations and religious fundamentalisms that these two wretched politicians seem quite literally to want to impose on the rest of us. It's a tough case to make that anything else is going on in the world anywhere that could possibly be of equal importance. But on July, t except maybe ball games. But on July 29th and 30th, and then again August 1st, something else happened that increasing numbers of people believe is of equal importance. On these dates, C-SPAN rebroadcast a panel discussion held originally in late June, sponsored by an organization called the American Scholar Symposium to discuss what really happened on 9-11-2001. Held in Los Angeles, the meeting lasted two days, and the C-SPAN rebroadcast covered one almost two-hour wrap-up session. The meeting was attended by 1,200 people interested in hearing something other than the official story of 9-11. The TV audience was evidently large enough to spur C-SPAN to broadcast the panel discussion five separate times in four days. Even a month late, this is a lot of airtime for stories that many people call conspiracy theories and for which many others use nastier descriptions. It is possible that the head of C-SPAN, Brian Lamb, so strongly disbelieves the conspiracy theories that he felt giving them ample publicity would discredit them further. It is equally possible, however, that Lamb, who seems honestly to believe in presenting various sides of most issues as fairly as he can, although not always giving every side equal time, tried to do exactly that and made legitimate questions raised about what really happened on 9-11. In any event, C-SPAN has made a major effort to bring information on the principal theories about 9-11 to the mainstream U.S. media. Lamb cannot be blamed for the coincidence that recent heavy military activity in Gaza and Lebanon is nearly drowning out his efforts. Let's address the real issues here. Why is it important that we not let the so-called conspiracy theories surrounding 9-11 be drowned out? After spending the better part of the last five years treating these theories with utmost skepticism, I've devoted serious time to actually studying them in recent months, and have also carefully watched several videos that are available on the subject. I've come to believe that significant parts of the 9-11 theories are true, and that therefore significant parts of the official story put out by the U.S. government and the 9-11 Commission are false. I now think there is persuasive evidence that the events of September did not unfold as the Bush administration and the 9-11 Commission would have us believe. The items below highlight the major questions surrounding 9-11, but don't constitute a detailed recounting of the evidence available. 1. An airliner almost certainly did not hit the Pentagon. Hard physical evidence supports this conclusion. Among other things, the hole in the Pentagon was considerably smaller than an airliner would create. The building was thus presumably hit by something smaller, possibly a missile or a drone, or less possibly, a smaller manned aircraft. Absolutely no information is available on what happened to the original aircraft, American Airlines Flight 77, the crew, the hijackers, and the passengers. The official story, as it appeared in the 9-11 Commission report, simply says, At 9.37.46, American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon, traveling at approximately 530 miles an hour. All on board, as well as many civilians and military personnel in the building, were killed. This allows readers to assume that pieces of the aircraft and some bodies of passengers were found in the rubble of the crash, but information so far released by the government does not show that such evidence was in fact ever found. The story put out by the Pentagon is that the plane and its passengers were incinerated, yet video footage of offices in the Pentagon situated at the edge of the hole clearly shows office furniture undamaged. The size of the hole in the Pentagon wall still remains as valid evidence and so far seems irrefutable. 2. The north and south towers of the World Trade Center almost certainly did not collapse and fall to earth because hijacked aircraft hit them. A plane did not hit Building 7 of the center, which also collapsed. All three were most probably destroyed by controlled demolition charges placed in the bu buildings before 9-11. A substantial volume of evidence shows that typical residues and byproducts from such demolition charges were present in the three buildings after they collapsed. The quality of the research done on the subject is quite impressive. If the judgments made on points 1 and 2 above are correct, 
They raised many whodunit questions and strongly suggest that some unnamed persons or groups either inside or with ties to the government were actively creating a Pearl Harbor event, most likely to gain public support for the aggressive foreign policies that followed, policies that would first transform the entire Middle East and second expand U.S. global domination. These first two points provide the strongest evidence available that the official story of 9-11 is not true. If the government could prove this evidence false and its own story on these points correct, all the other data and speculation supporting the conspiracy theories would be undermined. It has provided no such proof and no answers to growing questions. Other less important points supporting the theories include the following. 3. For at least one hour and 45 minutes after the hijacking of the first aircraft was known, U.S. air defense authorities failed to take any meaningful action. This strikes some conspiracy theorists as valid evidence that the U.S. Air Force was deliberately restrained from acting. Maybe so, but my own skepticism tells me that the inefficiency of U.S. defense forces is likely to be just as plausible an explanation. Four, some of the theorists believe that the 19 named hijackers were not actually the hijackers. One claim is that the names of the hijackers were not on the manifest of any of the four aircraft at all. Five, none of the 19 hijackers' bodies were ever autopsied since they were allegedly totally destroyed in the crashes, including even the people in the Pennsylvania crash. Six, at least five of the alleged hijackers or persons with identical names have since turned up alive in the Middle East. Nonetheless, the FBI has never bothered to reinvestigate or revise the list of hijackers. Does this suggest that the FBI knows that no one in the administration is interested in reopening any further investigation? 7. Numerous pilots have allegedly told the theorists that none of the 19 hijackers could possibly have flown the airliners well enough to hit the World Trade Center towers and the Pentagon with as much accuracy as was displayed. The debate on this issue simply raises more doubt about the government's charge that the people it has named as hijackers are the real hijackers. 8. No one except possibly government investigators who are not talking has seen the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. Some of the conspiracy theorists suggest that it was deliberately destroyed before it hit the ground. Others suggest that the plane actually landed in Cleveland and that passengers then were whisked away to some unknown destination. What happened to them at that point is simply a large question mark that makes it more difficult to believe this particular scenario. They went to that island with Patrick McGowan. No, did they? They're prisoners. But who's number two? You are. Nine, machinations in the U.S. stock market in the days before 9-11 suggest that some inside players in the market knew or suspected that United and American Airlines stock would soon drop. Two of the four of the aircraft involved in 9-11 were, of course, United planes, and the other two were, of course, American Airlines planes. It should be reemphasized that these items do not make up a complete list of all the charges made by the theorists, but they're a good sample. Anyone interested in perhaps the best summary of these charges should watch the video, Loose Change. Huh. How about that? To, re to repeat, points one and two above are the most important. If something other than an airliner actually did hit the Pentagon on 9-11, and if the north and south towers of the World Trade, Trade Center actually were dropped to the ground by controlled demolitions rather than by anything connected to the hijackings, the untrue stories peddled by the 9-11 Commission report are clearly susceptible of being turned into major political issues. A Scripps Howard News Service University, Ohio University poll taken from July 6th to 24th of this year concluded that more than a third, 36% of the American public, suspects that federal officials assisted in the 9-11 terrorist attacks or took no action to stop them so that the U.S. could go to war in the Middle East. The poll also found that 16% of Americans speculate that secretly planted explosives, not burning passenger jets, were the real reason the massive Twin Towers of the World Trade Center collapsed. A poll done by the Zogby polling organization two months earlier between May 12th and 16th, using questions worded somewhat differently, suggested even more strongly that the issue could become a big one if aggressively publicized. This poll concluded that 42% of Americans believed there had indeed been a cover-up of the true events of 9-11, and an additional 10% of Americans were unsure. 
The co-author of the poll, W. David Kubiak, stated that despite years of relentless media promotion, whitewash, and 9-11 commission propaganda, the official 9-11 story still can't even muster 50% popular support. Whichever these polls is closer to the truth, it would, make, it would seem that there's a considerable support for making a major political issue on the subject. I guess I better stop there, huh? Okay, both Pause. videos are up on the website, by the way. All right, so we got Bush singing his Sunday Bloody Sunday, with or without Peter Finch. Right. Now, what was the other one? Keith oh, Olbermann. The other one's Keith Olbermann. Oh, my right. God, I'm going to watch that again myself. There you go. But you can't play the audio because your thing is going to, not going to last for 12 minutes, is that it? No, I downloaded the video, and I, I can play the audio. From Keith Olbermann? Yes. Oh, we got to do that, too. Well, we got a lot of fish to fry here. Mm, Trust me when I tell you. This is Neil Rogers. Oh, smells real fishy to me. This is 516 AM. Drop ropes out of the nose of the ship and... Wait! Those aren't ropes! They're giant snakes! Oh, huge serpents are hanging from the airship and eating a number of men in the field. It's burst in the flames! It's burst in the flames and now men in the snakes of all sorts of falling and crashing to the ground. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen that clip. Yes, clip yes, I Hindenburg. have. Well, I'm watching the Keith Olbermann thing right now. Yeah, I was just going to say, speaking of clips, nice job, Eric. Right under the pool. We got 920 votes, by the way. We will make 1,000 again. 920. But right under that, there's George Bush singing Sunday Bloody Sunday. Just click on that and uh, have a few chuckles. And under that, Olbermann, the nexus of politics and terror. That is one of the best segments I've ever seen in the history of your life. Uh, are you watching it? I'm watching it now. Well, I had to stop it, you know, the, we came back from the break. Well, yeah, because you're going to have to play the audio in and a few I minutes. And I shoot it back up so that I could do so. You screwed it back up? Yes, I did. But i got to finish my article here, though, Please by do. Uh, Bill Christensen, the former CIA guy. I need closure. He said, whichever of these polls is closer to the truth, it would seem that there is considerable support for making a major political issue of the subject. This should be worked on at two different levels. At the first level, the objective should be a long-term centered on making a maximum effort to find out who the individuals and groups are that carried out the attacks in New York and Washington. Then these people should be tried in an international court and, if possible, convicted and punished for causing so many deaths. Such a trial, accompanied by actual change in U.S. policies, would show that some people on this globe are at least trying to move closer to more just and decent behavior in human relationships around the world. At the second level, the short term, the task should be to immediately set to work as hard as is humanly possible to defeat in this year's congressional election any candidate who refuses to support a no-holds-barred investigation of 9-11 by the Congress or a high-level international court. No more evidence than is now available is needed in order to begin this process. A manageable volume of carefully collected and analyzed evidence is already at hand on both items one and two above. Such evidence should be used right now to buttress charges that elements within the Bush administration, as well as possibly other groups, foreign or domestic, were involved in a massive fraud against the American people, a fraud that has led to many thousands of deaths. This charge of fraud, if proven, involves a much greater crime against the American people and people of the world than any other charges of fraud connected to the run-up to the invasion of Iraq in March 2003. It is a charge that we should not sweep under the rug because what is happening in Lebanon, Gaza, Iraq, Syria, and Iran seems more pressing and overwhelming. It's a charge that's more important because it's all related to all the areas just mentioned. After all, the events of 9-11 have been used by this administration to justify every single aspect of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East since 9-11. 
It is a charge that's more important also because it affects the very core of our entire political system. If proven it is a conspiracy so far successful, not only against the people of the U.S., but against the entire world. Finally, it's a charge too important to ignore simply because the U.S. government refuses to discuss it. We must force the Bush administration to discuss it. Discussions aggressively pushed day after day about what really happened in 9-11 will be one of the most important tasks between now and early November. Such discussions can, one hopes, provide progressives with a way to jolt voters out of their apathy and willingness to support the status quo that they think gives them security and encourage more voters to stop supporting Bush, the Republicans, and the wobbly Democratic politicians who might as well be Republicans. A major issue like this, already supported by many voters, may prove especially important in a congressional election year when new uncertainties in the Middle East, new possibilities of terrorism against the U.S. and retaliation for recent large-scale acts of Israeli-U.S. terrorism in Gaza and Lebanon, and a corrupt, almost single-party U.S. political system combined to make it more likely that supporters of Bush will retain their majority this November. In terms of electoral impact, it would not matter whether heavy publicity did in fact force the administration to accept a new high-level investigation of 9-11 events. Initially, the principal goal would be to contribute heavily to the defeat of both Republicans and Democrats who refuse to support wholeheartedly a major new investigation by Congress or an international court. This might result in the defeat of more Republicans than Democrats in November, but ultimately the hoped-for goal should be the end of a system in which Democrats are barely different from Republicans, along with cutbacks in the political power of wealth and the foreign and domestic lobbies paid for by wealth. These are the dominant features of our system today that have practically eliminated meaningful democracy in the U.S. The failure of democracy has happened before in U.S. history, but this time it is likely to last longer, at least until U.S. policies begin to pay as much attention to the needs of the world as they do to selfish or thoughtless needs of the U.S. and its military-industrial complex. Attacks on the criminal events surrounding 9-11 might speed this process. Virtually no members of Congress, Democratic or Republican, will relish calling for a further investigation of 9-11. For right now, in addition to other motives, the issue should be used to go after those political prostitutes among elected office holders who should also be defeated because they're so easily seduced by money and power to vote for immoral wars against weak enemies. At the Los Angeles meeting of the American Scholars Symposium, one of the main speakers, Webster Tarpley, summarized his own views on the events of 9-11. He emphasized that neocon fascist madmen had perpetrated the 9-11 myth. He went on to say, the most important thing is that the 9-11 myth is the premise on the root of the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war and the coming attack on Iran. We must deprive the myth's perpetrators of the ability to stampede and manipulate hundreds of millions of people with their cynically planned terrorist events. Let's give Webster Tarpley another mistakenly labeled conspiracist who labored in the wilderness for so long. Three cheers. Barack. That's it. This is by a former uh, senior official of the CIA. Not just by some... Uh, yeah, yeah, he's a wackadoo. Yeah, we're like that, not one of those. <laughs> yeah, right. God. 1223, Mike, I feel like I've been here for 15 hours already. Yeah. We saved the world with ball games, man. Marlin game tonight. Marlin's in the Dodgers. Preceded by, of course, some of the proudest radio in the history of South Florida. Make no mistake about it. That's where you see some arm pro pro uh, problems. The Crow. 934 votes. We're going to make the 1,000 easy. I was starting to get a little bit panicky there for, for just a second. You know what I mean? You know me. Oh, yeah. Panic man. Paul Krugman writes in the New York Times. You talked about this yesterday? I mentioned it. What was in yesterday's paper, but of course I was on yesterday, and I'm sure you didn't read it. No. Because you don't sit, you know, you got some good callers that you take. Hi. Right. And what's the other one now? Hi, Ron. <laughs> Formerly Jamba, but now And he's... then there's always Enron. Oh, yeah. Paul Krugman, hoping for fear, he says, just two days after 9-11, I learned from congressional staffers that Republicans on Capitol Hill were already exploiting the atrocity, trying to use it to push through tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy. 
I wrote about this subject the next day, warning that politicians who wrap themselves in the flag while relentlessly pursuing their usual partisan agenda are not true patriots. The response from readers was furious. Fury not at the politicians, but at me for suggesting that such an outrage was even possible. How can I say that to my young son, demanded one angry correspondent. I wonder what he says to his son these days. We now know from the very beginning the Bush administration and its allies in Congress saw the terrorist threat not as a problem to be solved, but as a political opportunity to be exploited. The story of the latest terror plot makes the administration's fecklessness and cynicism on terror clearer than ever. Fecklessness. The administration has always pinched pennies when it comes to actually defending America against terrorist attacks. Now we learn that terrorism experts have known about the threat of liquid explosives for years, but that the Bush administration did nothing about that threat until now and tried to divert funds from programs that might have helped protect us. As the British terror plot was unfolding, reports the Associated Press, the Bush administration quietly tried to take away $6 million that was supposed to be spent this year developing new explosive detection technology. Cynicism. Republicans have consistently portrayed their opponents as weak on terrorism, if not actually in sympathy with the terrorist. Remember the 2002 TV ad in which Senator Max Cleveland of Georgia was pictured with Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein? Now we have Dick Cheney suggesting that the voters in the Democratic primary in Connecticut were lending aid and comfort to al-Qaeda types. There they go again. More fecklessness and maybe more cynicism, too. NBC reports that there was a dispute between the British and Americans over when to make arrests in the latest plot. Since the alleged plotters were not ready to go, they hadn't purchased airline tickets yet, and some didn't even have passports yet, British officials wanted to watch and wait, hoping to gather more evidence. But according to NBC, the Americans, Americans insisted on early arrests. Suspicions that the Bush administration might have had political motives in wanting the arrest made prematurely are fed by memories of events two years ago. The Department of Homeland Security declared a terror alert just after the Democratic National Convention, shifting the spotlight away from John Kerry, and according to Pakistani intelligence officials, blowing the cover of a mole inside al-Qaeda. But whether or not there was something fishy about the timing of the latest terror announcement, there's the question of whether the administration's scare tactics will work. If current polls are any indication, Republicans are on the verge of losing control of at least one House of Congress, and on every issue other than terrorism and homeland security, says Newweek about it in its latest poll, the Democrats can win. Can last-minute effort to make a big splash on terror stave off electoral disaster? <coughs> Many political analysts think it will. But even on terrorism, and even after the latest news, polls give Republicans at best a slight advantage, and Democrats are finally doing what they should have done a long time ago, calling foul on the administration's attempt to take partisan advantage of the terrorist threat. It was significant both that President Bush felt obliged to defend himself against that accusation in a Sunday radio address, and that his standard defense, attacking a straw man, declaring that there should be no disagreement about the dangers we face, came off sounding so weak. Above all, many Americans now understand the extent to which Mr. Bush abused the trust the nation placed in him after 9-11. Americans no longer believe that he's someone who will keep them safe, as many did even in 2004. The pathetic response to Hurricane Katrina and the disaster in Iraq have seen to that. All Mr. Bush and his party can do at this point is demonize their opposition, and my guess is that the public won't go for it, that Americans are fed up with leadership that has nothing to hope for but fear itself. What, what a great line. Yes. Nothing to hope for but fear itself. That's Wouldn't great. Wouldn't FDR be proud? Now, you're going to play that Keith Olbermann thing in a couple minutes here, so just... Uh, with, with glee. Just don't breathe too hard or your computer might, like, lose it. <laughs> this is Neil Rogers. Oh, this is 560 QAM. It's Neil Rogers. I'm hot for a lady who comes into what she really drives me crazy when she puts that big brown truck in the gear. Makes me smile when she says sign here. Hope that girl don't come today. I hope it's a new driver named Ray. I don't understand what you see in that guy. You girls think that he's so fine. I tell you what, I let him hit it. That's what? 
So let me ask you this. What can Brownie do for you? Oh, where do we start? 1233-2741. Curtis Stevenson at two. No relation to Adelaide. And then we got Gildy at four. Well, that's where it goes. Okay, now, have you got that thing queued up? Keith yes, Oberman, I do. Who does uh, Countdown on MSNBC. Probably the best news-oriented show. Also with a lot of humor. Uh, every night, 8 to 9, Monday through Friday. And last night, he just, I think he hit the jackpot. Okay, roll it. Roll it. I don't hear it. Oh, I know. i got a big delay going on. Hang on. George is rolling one. The term we employ is the nexus of politics and terror. It does not imply that there is no terror. But it also does not deny that there is politics. And it refuses to assume that counterterror measures in this country are not being influenced by politics. Our third story on the countdown, the basis of all this at heart. Remarks made on May 10, 2005 by a former Bush administration official discussing the old color-coded terror threat warning system. More often than not, he said, we were the least inclined to raise it. Sometimes we disagreed with the intelligence assessment. Sometimes we thought even if the intelligence was good, you don't necessarily put the country on alert. There were times when some people were really aggressive about raising it, and we said, for that, the speaker was the first secretary of Homeland Security, Tom Ridge. In the light of those remarks and his criticism this week of the vice president for politicizing terror in the context of the Connecticut senatorial primary, it is imperative that we examine each of the coincidences of timing since 2002, including the one last week in which excoriating comments by leading Republicans about leading Democrats just happened to precede arrests in a vast purported terror plot, arrests that we now know were carried out on a timeline requested not by the British nor necessitated by the evidence, but requested by this government. We introduce these coincidences to you exactly as we did when we first compiled this top ten list after the revelation that the announced threats to New York's subway system last October had been wildly overblown. And we do so by reminding you and ourselves here that perhaps the simplest piece of wisdom in the world is called the logical fallacy. Just because event A occurs and then event B occurs, that does not automatically mean that event A caused event B. But neither does it say the opposite. The nexus of politics and terror... Please judge for yourself. Number one, May 18, 2002. The first details of the President's daily briefing of August 6, 2001 are revealed, including its title, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S. The same day, another memo is discovered, revealing the FBI knew of men with links to al-Qaeda training at an Arizona flight school. The memo was never acted upon. Questions about 9-11 intelligence failures are swirling. May 20th, 2002. The terror warnings from the highest levels of the federal government tonight are... Two days later, warning. FBI Director Mueller declares that another terrorist attack is inevitable. Tonight, there are even more warnings. The next day, the Department of Homeland Security issues warnings of attacks against railroads nationwide and against New York City landmarks like the Brooklyn Bridge and the Statue of Liberty. Number two, Thursday, June 6, 2002. I never really anticipated this kind of impact. Colleen Rowling, the FBI agent who tried to alert her superiors to the specialized flight training taken by Zacharias Moussaoui, whose information suggests the government missed a chance to break up the 9-11 plot, testifies before Congress. Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Graham says Rowley's testimony has inspired similar pre-9-11 whistleblowers. 
Monday, June 10th, 2002. Four days later. We have disrupted an unfolding terrorist plot. Speaking from Russia, Attorney General John Ashcroft reveals that an American named Jose Padilla is under arrest, accused of plotting a radiation bomb attack in this country. In fact, Padilla had by this time already been detained for more than one month. Number three, February 5th, 2003, Secretary of State Powell tells the United Nations Security Council of Iraq's concealment of weapons, including 18 mobile biological weapons laboratories, justifying a U.N. or U.S. first strike. Many in the U.N. are doubtful. Months later, much of the information proves untrue. February 7, 2003. Two days later, as anti-war demonstrations continue to take place around the globe, take some time to prepare for an emergency. Homeland Security Secretary Ridge cites credible threats by al-Qaeda and raises the terror alert level to orange. Three days after that, Fire Administrator David Paulison, who would become the acting head of FEMA after the Hurricane Katrina disaster, advises Americans to stock up on plastic sheeting and duct tape to protect themselves against radiological or biological attack. Number four, July 23, 2003. The White House admits that the CIA, months before the President's State of the Union address, expressed strong doubts about the claim that Iraq had attempted to buy uranium from Niger. On the 24th, the Congressional Report on the 9-11 attacks is issued. It criticizes government at all levels. It reveals an FBI informant had been living with two of the future hijackers. It concludes that Iraq had no link to al-Qaeda. Twenty-eight pages of the report are redacted. On the 26th, American troops are accused of beating Iraqi prisoners. July 29, 2003, three days later, amid all of the negative headlines, word of a possible new al-Qaeda attack, Homeland Security issues warnings of further terrorist attempts to use airplanes for suicide attacks. Number five, December 17, 2003, 9-11 Commission co-chair Thomas Kane says the attacks were preventable. The next day, a federal appeals court says the government cannot detain suspected radiation bomber Jose Padilla indefinitely without charges. And the chief U.S. weapons inspector in Iraq, Dr. David Kay, who has previously announced he has found no weapons of mass destruction there, announces he will resign his post. December 21st, 2003, four days later, the Sunday before Christmas. Today, the United States government raised the national threat level. Homeland Security again raises the threat level to orange, claiming credible intelligence of further plots to crash airliners into U.S. cities. Subsequently, six international flights into this country are canceled after some passenger names purportedly produce matches on government no-fly lists. The French later identify those matched names. One belongs to an insurance salesman from Wales, another to an elderly Chinese woman, a third to a five-year-old boy. Number six, March 30th, 2004. The new chief weapons inspector in Iraq, Charles Dulfer, tells Congress, we have still not found any WMD in that country. And, after weeks of having refused to appear before the 9-11 Commission, Condoleezza Rice relents and agrees to testify. On the 31st, four Blackwater USA contractors working in Iraq are murdered. Their mutilated bodies dragged through the streets and left on public display in Fallujah. The role of civilian contractors in Iraq is now widely questioned. April 2nd, 2004. The FBI has issued a new warning tonight. To Homeland Security issues a bulletin warning 
that terrorists may try to blow up buses and trains using fertilizer and fuel bombs, like the one detonated in Oklahoma City, bombs stuffed into satchels or duffel bags. Number 7, May 16, 2004. Secretary of State Powell appears on Meet the Press. Moderator Tim Russert closes by asking him about the enormous personal credibility Powell had placed before the U.N. in laying out a case against Saddam Hussein. An aide to Powell interrupts the question, saying the interview is over. I think that was one of your staff, Mr. Secretary. I don't think that's appropriate. Get Emily, get out of the way. Powell finishes his answer, admitting that much of the information he had been given about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq was inaccurate and uh, wrong, and in some cases deliberately misleading. On the 21st, new photos showing mistreatment of Iraqi prisoners at Abu Ghraib prison are released. On the 24th, Associated Press video from Iraq confirms U.S. forces mistakenly bombed a wedding party, killing more than 40. Wednesday, May 26, 2004, two days later. Good afternoon. Attorney General Ashcroft Today, and FBI Mueller, Director Mueller warned that intelligence from multiple sources indicates al-Qaeda's specific intention to hit the United States hard. And that 90% of the arrangements for an attack on the United States were complete. The color-coded warning system is not raised. The Homeland Security Secretary, Tom Ridge, does not attend the announcement. Number eight. July 6, 2004, Democratic presidential candidate John Kerry selects Senator John Edwards as his vice presidential running mate, producing a small bump in the election opinion polls and producing a huge swing in media attention towards the Democratic campaign. July 8, 2004, two days later, credible reporting now indicates that al-Qaeda is moving forward with its plans to carry out a large-scale attack in the United States. Homeland Secretary Ridge warns of information about al-Qaeda attacks during the summer or autumn. Four days after that, the head of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, DeForest B. Soares, Jr., confirms he has written to Ridge about the prospect of postponing the upcoming presidential election in the event it is interrupted by terrorist acts. Number 9, July 29, 2004. At their party convention in Boston, the Democrats formally nominate John Kerry as their candidate for president. As in the wake of any convention, the Democrats now dominate the media attention over the subsequent weekend. August 1, 2004. Monday morning, three days later. It is as reliable uh, a source, group of sources that we've ever seen before. The Department of Homeland Security raises the alert status for financial centers in New York, New Jersey, and Washington to orange. The evidence supporting the warning, reconnaissance data left in a home in Iraq, later proves to be roughly four years old and largely out of date. Number 10, October 6, 2005, 10 a.m. Eastern The president addresses the National Endowment for Democracy, once again emphasizing the importance of the war on terror and insisting his government has broken up at least 10 terrorist plots since 9-11. At 3 p.m. Eastern Time, five hours after the president's speech has begun, the Associated Press reports that Karl Rove will testify again to the CIA leak grand jury, and that Special Prosecutor Fitzgerald has told Rove he cannot guarantee that he will not be indicted. We're awaiting a news conference at the bottom of the hour. New York City... At 5.17 p.m. Eastern Time, seven hours after the president's speech has begun, New York officials disclose a bomb threat to the city's subway system based on information supplied by the federal government. A Homeland Security spokesman says... The intelligence upon which the disclosure is based 
is of doubtful credibility. And it later proves that New York City had known of the threat for at least three days and had increased police presence in the subways long before making the announcement at that particular time. Local New York television station WNBC reports it had the story of the threats days in advance of the announcement, but was asked by high-ranking federal officials in New York and Washington to hold off on its story. Less than four days after having revealed the threat, Mayor Michael Bloomberg of New York says, since the period of the threat now seems to be passing, I think over the immediate future we'll slowly be winding down the enhanced security, while news organizations ranging from the New York Post to NBC News quote sources who say there was reason to believe the informant who triggered the warning simply made it up. A senior U.S. counterterrorism official tells the New York Times, quote, there was no there there. In all fairness, as we observed last October and we observe again tonight, we could possibly construct a similar timeline of terror events and warnings and their relationship to the opening of new chain stores around the country. But if merely a reasonable case could be made that any of these juxtapositions of events are more than just coincidences, especially the one last week in which terror policy was again injected directly into a political race, it underscores the need for questions to be asked in this country. Questions about what is prudence and what is fear-mongering. All right. How do, you, how do you like that? I like that a lot. I know you would. Okay, it's already 1247, so the message is... Be afraid. Be very afraid. This is Neil Rogers. I'm dying out here. This is 560 QAM. The sky is falling. It's a terrorist warning. Oh. So as you drive on into work, be alert. The White House says we're all doomed now. Can't be sure when they might strike next. Yeah, we're nervous wrecks because of all of the stress. It's 560 WQM. Happy Tuesday. The world is still spinning around. The sun is shining. We're not dead yet. Any minute, though, could be. That's right. Have a good time. Not too good, though, because you might then you're burning hell. See, that's the problem with all these things, you know? All the things that you'd like to do if the world is coming to an end, like, say, Saturday, between now and then. Well, you're going to burn in hell. Oh, my God. And how about this business about dividing Iraq into three uh, separate countries? How is that? We got the Kurds and the Shias and the Sunnis and, oh, Mm -hmm. my God. Well, that, that would be just great, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. And Solve you know all the that's going to be very effective. <laughs> work, work for India. Look right. at that. They don't have any more Muslim products. Um, speaking of Asia, China has banished Homer Simpson, Pokemon, and Mickey Mouse from prime time. 
Beginning September 1, regulators have barred foreign cartoons from TV from 5 to 8 p.m. In an effort to protect China's struggling animation studios, uh, the move allows the Monkey King and his Chinese pals to get the top TV viewing hours to themselves. Peacock? You ever hear the Monkey King? No, but I'm going to look into it. Foreign cartoons, especially from Japan, are hugely popular with China's 250 million children and the country's own animation studios who struggle to compete. Communist leaders are said to be frustrated that so many cartoons are foreign-made, especially after efforts to build up Chinese animation studios. The ban hasn't been formally announced, but newspapers already were criticizing it this past weekend as the wrong way to approve programming. Is that the Monkey King? No, it's a Japanese cartoon thing. No. Well, that's sweet. This is a worrying, short-sighted policy and will not solve the fundamental problems in China's cartoon industry, the Southern Metropolis News said. The viewing masses, whether children or adults, will have no choice but to passively support Chinese products. Well, isn't that what they want? They want them, uh, Chinese, to be real passive. Yes, they do. Chinese animators produce hundreds of hours of programs a year but aren't known for flair originality. They're probably putting old David Hasselhoff reruns on. The drawn, they draw on traditional stories such as Journey to the West about the adventures of the Monkey King and have yet to invent characters to match the appeal of Mickey Mouse or Japanese icons such as Pokemon. The cartoon campaign comes amid efforts by President Hao Jintao's government to uh, Hu Jin, whatever his name is, Hu Jintao's government to tighten control over the other pop culture, ranging from movies to magazines and websites. TV stations have been told to limit foreign programming, stop showing scary movies in prime time, and have their hosts rest more conservatively and use fewer English words on the air. <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. Most cartoons in China Central TV, the national broadcaster, are Chinese-made. But more freewheeling local broadcasters show everything from The Simpsons to Japanese, South Korean, and European cartoons dubbed into Chinese. Film studios have been pushed to merge in order to create big, well-financed competitors. Maybe they can just get Mel Gibson over there, please. Huh? <laughs> yeah, that's all the problems. Yeah, the passion of the Buddha. Can't you just see it now? Oh, yeah. Mel could put his head together with the Chinese. And by the way, they will not put up with the Dalai Lama. No more, they said. They said, goodbye, Dalai Lama. 989 votes on the poll. George is going to be spending a lot of time tomorrow explaining that new uh, lineup. Right. In between Elvis tunes. Oh, man. <laughs> hey, the, speaking of Japan, man, don't you remember the big shot was here a couple of weeks ago and Bush took him to Graceland? That's right. They love Elvis. Over and I bet you the two of them had a real good old time together. Yeah, they, they love Elvis. I really don't know why. We know why the Germans like David Hasselhoff, because he's one of their peoples, you know. Right. But well, what's the Japanese uh, obsession with Elvis? Maybe Elvis was turning Japanese. They're, they're into comical cartoon character type things. Are you saying that Elvis was comical and cartoon-like? Yes. Oh. 991 votes on the poll. What's your take on the announced QAM new lineup, which starts August 28th? Let's promote the hell out of this, baby. Then they can't blame us if they flop. It'll be great. What is it? 364. I- I've read it, what, 75 times already? Sure. Maybe not that many. At least About 30, man. 30, and they still don't know what it is. 364 bozos. Who is Kenny Walker, 119? I, I don't know. Big improvement, 100. They- see, they like it already. That's a, that's a good head start. What was that line you had this morning before the show about head? What was it? Oh, if I remembered it, I sure as hell wouldn't say it now. What do you mean by that? It was that? about Darren Kagan. Yeah. Being a ditto head. Yeah. <laughs> being or giving. <laughs> I forgot what I said. Oh, no, big I improvement 100. <laughs> uh, that's enough. Don't get Joyce now. Not uh, right in the middle of the summertime. I still got a month to go with this crap. Won't change a thing, 69. Kimba Camper is coma-inducing 69. Oh, how true. I hate this pool 62. What does this have to do with Fidel 60? He's dead. 
Uh, if he's not dead, he sure looks close. It's okay, 50. What are they smoking over there, 42? They just want some. It's going to be a disaster, 35. And what does this have to do with Israel? Oh, 21. This is Neil Rogers. This is 560 QAM. Hello, this is Jello And you know who? Mom will be listening to Angel Neil Rogers on one, two hour. Mm, 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 mm. It's, uh, look at that, 1,004 votes on the poll. Wrecked them. All right, we did it. We killed them. Aren't you excited? Kill, kill so what somebody. about that Keith Olbermann segment? Isn't it a damn good that lucky was thing phenomenal. I saw that last night? I caught it? Yes. Very I lucky. it was pretty uh, profound. Yes, it was. Too bad that most of the people out there, like that, still worried about where that guy peed where he shouldn't have, you know. So where did he? You have to read it. Andrew Gumbel and Donald McIntyre in the Independent UK. Now, did I tell you the Independent is my favorite newspaper? That's what you said. America's one-eyed view of war, Star Stripes and the Star of David, says there are two sides to every conflict. Unless you rely on the U.S. media for information about the Battle of Lebanon, viewers have been fed a diet of partisan coverage, which treats Israel as the good guys and their Hezbollah enemy as the incarnation of evil. They write, if these were normal times, the American view of the conflict in Lebanon might look something like the street scenes that have electrified the suburbs of Detroit for the past four weeks. In Dearborn, home to the Ford Motor Company, also the highest concentration of Arab Americans in the country, up to a 1,000 people have turned out day after day to express their outrage at the Israeli military campaign and mourn the loss of civilian life in Lebanon. At one protest in late July, 15,000 people, almost half of the local Arab-American population, showed up in a sea of Lebanese flags along with anti-Israeli and anti-Bush slogans. A few miles to the north, in the heavily Jewish suburb of Southfield, where I used to live, by the way, the congregation Sherry Zedek Synagogue has played host to passionate counter-protest in which the U.S. and Israeli national anthems are played back-to-back and demonstrators have asserted that it is Israel's survival, not Lebanon's, that's at stake here. Such is the normal exercise of free speech in an open society, one might think. 
But these are not normal times. The Detroit protests have been tinged with paranoia and justifiable fear on both sides. Several Jewish institutions in the area, including two community centers and several synagogues, have hired private security guards in response to an incident in Seattle in July in which a mentally unstable 30-year-old Muslim walked into a uh, Jewish Federation building and opened fire, killing one person, injuring five others. On the Arab-American side, many have expressed reluctance to stand up and be counted among the protesters for fear of being tinged by association with Hezbollah, which is on the U.S. list of terrorist organizations. As a result, the voices heard during the protests tend to be the more extreme ones. They don't like to discuss their political views in any public forum, following the revelation a few months ago that the National Security Agency was wiretapping phone calls and email exchanges as part of the Bush administration's so-called war on terror. They're even afraid to donate money to help the civilian victims of the war in Lebanon because of the intense scrutiny Islamic and Arab charities have been subjected to since the 9-11 attacks. The Bush administration has denounced 40 charities worldwide as financiers of terrorism and arrested and deported dozens of people associated with them. Consequently, while Jewish charities such as the United Jewish Communities are busy raising $300 million to help families affected by the Katusha rockets raining down on northern Israel, donations to the Lebanese victims have come in at no more than a trickle. Outside Detroit and a handful of other cities with sizable Arab-American populations, it's hard to detect that there are two sides to the conflict at all. The Dearborn protests have received almost no national attention, and when they have, it's usually been to denounce the participants as extremists and apologists for terrorism, either because they voice support for Hezbollah or because they've carried banners in which the star David is at the center of the Israeli flag, replaced by a swastika. The media, more generally, has left little doubt in the minds of a majority of American news consumers that the Israelis are the good guys, the aggrieved victims, while Hezbollah is an incarnation of the same evil responsible for bringing down the World Trade Center, a heartless and faceless organization whose destruction is so important it can justify all the damage Israel was inflicting on Lebanon and its civilians. The point is not that this viewpoint is necessarily wrong. The point, and this is what distinguishes the U.S. from every other Western country in its attitude to the conflict, is that it is presented as a foregone conclusion. Not only is there no, next, there no next to no debate, but the debate itself is considered unnecessary and suspect. The 24-hour cable news stations are the worst offenders. Rupert Murdoch's Fox News has had reporters running around northern Israel chronicling every rocket attack and every Israeli mobilization, but has shown little or no interest in anything happening on the other side of the border. It is a rarity on any of the cable channels to see any Arab being tapped for an expert opinion on the conflict. A startling amount of airtime, meanwhile, is given to the likes of Michael D. Evans, an end-of-the-world biblical prophet with no credentials in the complexities of Middle Eastern politics. He has shown up on MSNBC and Fox under the label Middle East Analyst. Fox's default analyst on this and many other issues has been the right-wing provocateur and best-selling author Ann Coulter, whose main credential is to have opened, opined days after 9-11 that what America should do to the Middle East is invade their countries, kill their leaders, and convert them to Christianity. Often the coverage has been hysterical and distasteful. In the days following the Israeli bombing of Kana, several pro-Israeli bloggers started spreading a hoax story that Hezbollah had engineered the event or stage-managed it by placing dead babies in the rubble for the purpose of misleading reporters. Oliver North, the Reagan-era orchestrator of the Iran-Contra affair, who is now a right-wing TV and radio host, and Michelle Malkin, a sharp-tongued Bush administration cheerleader who runs her own weblog, appeared on Fox News to give credence to the hoax before the Israeli army came forward to take responsibility and brought the matter to at least a partial close. As the conflict has gone on, the media interpretation of it has only hardened. Essentially, the line touted by cable news hosts and their correspondents, closely adhering to the line adopted by the Bush administration and its neocon supporters, is that Hezbollah is part of a giant anti-Israeli and anti-American terror network that also includes Hamas, Al-Qaeda, the governments of Syria and Iran, and the insurgents in Iraq. 
Little effort is made to distinguish between these groups or explain what their goals might be. The conflict is presented as a straight fight between good and evil, in which U.S. interest and Israeli interest intersect almost completely. Anyone who suggests otherwise is likely to be pounced on and ripped to shreds. When John Dingell, a Democratic congressman from Michigan with a large Arab-American population in his constituency, gave an interview suggesting it was wrong for the U.S. to take sides instead of pushing for an end to violence, he was quickly and loudly accused of being a Hezbollah apologist. Newt Gingrich, the Republican former House Speaker, accused him of failing to draw any moral distinction between Hezbollah and Israel. Rush Limbaugh, the popular conservative talk show host, piled into him, and as did the conservative newspaper, the Washington Times. The Times was later forced to admit it quoted Dingle out of context and reprinted his full words, including, I condemn Hezbollah, as does everyone else, for the violence. The hysteria is extended into the realm of domestic politics, especially since this is a congressional election year. Republicans have sought to depict last week's primary defeated Democratic Senator Jew Lieberman of Connecticut, one of the loudest cheerleaders for the Iraq War, as some sort of wacko extremist anti-Semite, anti-Israeli stand that risks undermining national security. Vice President Dick Cheney said Lieberman's defeat would encourage al-Qaeda types to think they can break the will of the Americans. The fact that the man who beat Lieberman, Ned Lamont, is an old-fashioned East Coast wasp who was a registered Republican much of his life is something Mr. Cheney chose to overlook. Part of the Republican strategy this year is to attack any media that either attacks them or has the temerity to report facts to cover the official party line. Thus, when Reuters was forced to withdraw a photograph of Beirut under bombardment because one of its stringers had doctored the image to increase the black smoke, it was a chance to rip into the news agency over its efforts to be even-handed. In a typical uh, article, Michelle Malkin denounced Reuters as a news service that seems to have made its mark rubber-stamping pro-Hezbollah propaganda. She was not the only one to take that view. Mainstream, even liberal publications have echoed her line. Tim Rutten, the Los Angeles Times liberal media critic, denounced the obscenely anti-Israeli tenor of most of the European and world press in his most recent column. It's not just the U.S. media which tilts in a pro-Israeli direction. Congress, too, is remarkably unified in its support for the Israeli government, and politicians more generally understand that to criticize Israel is to risk jeopardizing their future careers. When Antonio Villagrosa, the up-and-coming Democratic mayor of Los Angeles, was first invited to comment on the Middle East crisis, he sounded a note so pro-Israeli that he was forced to apologize to local Muslim and Arab community leaders. There is far less public debate of Israeli policy in the U.S., in fact, than there is in Israel itself. This is less a reflection of American Jewish opinion, which is more diverse than is suggested in the media, than it is a commentary on the power of pro-Israeli lobby groups like AIPAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which bankrolls pro-Israeli congressional candidates. That, in turn, is frustrating to liberal Jews like Michael Lerner, a San Francisco rabbi, who heads an anti-war community called Tikkun. Rabbi Lerner has tried to argue for years that it is in Israel's best interest to reach a peaceful settlement and that demonizing Arabs as terrorists is counterproductive and against Judaism. Lerner is probably right to assert that when he speaks for a large number of American Jews, only half of whom are affiliated with pro-Israeli lobbying organizations. Certainly, dinner party conversation in heavily Jewish cities like New York suggests misgivings about Israel's strategic aims, even if there are some concessions that Hezbollah cannot be allowed to strike with impunity. Few, if any, of those misgivings have entered the U.S. media. There's no major figure in American political life who's been willing to raise the issue of legitimate needs of the Palestinian people or even talk about them as human beings, Lerner said. The organized Jewish community has transformed the image of Judaism into a cheering squad for the Israeli government, whatever its policies might be. That is just idolatry and goes against all the warnings in the Bible about giving too much power to the king or the state. Or even to... Oh, God! Or, or Larry King. Uh -huh. Don't be knocking Israel now if you value your career. <laughs> Such as it is. Got over 1,000 yeah. votes, man. I think we got a shot at close to 1,100, don't you? I think so. 1,018. we got a shot. As Jimmy Johnson said, remember that? Oh, yeah. So how's Donnie Culpepper doing, by the way, Josh? 
Uh, he got in a couple plays. Like, you know, just couple what of plays. What, are you say? what do you mean by that? I think he's doing better than Ricky Williams did here. <laughs> hey, Ricky. One thirteen at five sixty WK. Hey, listen, we got to get a little sports stuff in here though, because you know we're on the wrong station for all the serious crap. We don't want to get too newsy. And tomorrow you want to be sure and get all your callers on. Now. Hi. The do the do Ron Ron. Hey, Stogie's continues to be South Florida's top cigar shop with one of the broadest inventories containing an amazing, outstanding, unbeatable selection of over a thousand open boxes of cigars, including a lot of names that you know and love, like Perdomo, Ashton VSG, Arturo Fuente, Padron, Monte Cristo, Romeo and Juliet, and lots more, and special hard-to-find and obscure cigars that you won't find in almost any other cigar shop. Buy your premium Stogie's for the price of a second and stay a while. Enjoy your smooth smoke at Stogie's Wine Lounge featuring Pierre Andre, 100% Pinot Noir, and lots of other fine wines from all around the world. In fact, can't you just see uh, on his last breath, on his deathbed, there's uh, Fidel with a big fat Stogie from Stogie's. Can you see that? I can see it now. Soon, I'm sure. You'll find Stogie's at 11612 North Kendall Drive, just a half mile east of Exit 20 off the Turnpike, open every day, seven days a week for your smoking, dancing pleasure. Call today to reserve your favorite cigars at Stogie's, 305-598-9820. How's Joey Carr doing, by the way? 305-598-9820. Don't forget to say hi to Mario and the girl Sandra and Heather and get your free cigar when you stop into Stogie's at 11612 North Kendall Drive. Be sure and tell them the old pipe smoker sent you by. This is Neil Rogers. Neil, oh, God! This is 560 QAM. Already have a homosexual relationship with Neil, so I might as well have one with you, too. And now, the show that's the antidote to those liberal media distortions of our government. It's the West Texas Wing. Morning, Dick. You wanted to see me, Mr. President? Yeah, we got to get more information on this big problem. Oh, you mean Hezbollah. No, not that. Oh, then you must be talking about the never-ending war in Iraq. Uh-uh. Huh. Uh, North Korea? No, something even bigger than that. What problem are you talking about, Mr. President? Why didn't the CIA tell me Lance Bass was homosexual? I, I always thought Justin was the gay one. Come back next time for a fair and balanced, compassionately conservative view of our government in action. Only on the West Texas Wing. Bye, bye, bye! 118. <laughs> uh, scared me. Maybe we're spelling that the wrong way. I beg your pardon? I think so. Well, you thought that was the uh, out cue? Yeah, I was going to hit oh. the thing there. When it comes to... <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, two can play that game. Bye, bye, bye! <laughs> Keep you on the edge of your seat. Hey, well, listen, the last time I was on last Thursday, I got out of here 50 minutes early. I, I mean, we could go through Because uh, the workers upstairs severed uh, everything. They severed everything? They were up on the roof doing something, and they... Yeah. Oh, my God! It's a set... Bird head. Yeah. Yeah, they they cut the uh, the connection for everything in the building. Oh, did I tell you? That's what I thought. Now, now I, I have no idea knowing what time that happened. Was that when I was going into the break? Yeah, it was close to it. It was like at a, at a quarter till. Well, I'm not asking what time of day, but I'm just saying yeah. what part of that. I, I think I was going into a break, and then mm-hmm. I couldn't hear a damn thing. Right. And then the phone rang. Right. Just like the phone rang this morning. Yeah. <laughs> That's one great thing about that place, man. Nothing is oh, ever going to change. God. Nothing will ever change. As long as we have that silly-ass regime of little uh, boys, little sports boys. I'm sitting here for 50. I was talking to you because I came in actually early. Oh, did you? I had to stop and do some shopping. 
And uh, no, no, I'm, you were there because mm. the uh, program wasn't coming down. Yeah, well, I was here ten minutes before you heard me before I made that call. Right, that's I was what I'm running saying. around here trying to hello, hello. And I'm, I'm doing hello on this end. And is anybody there? Are you out taking a, a deuce? So what, what's going on over there? I'm flipping buttons. I'm uh, and then, uh, crawling and around that, the floor. And that, of course, is because the uh, QM uh, sports nerds they have to keep coming in there and potching around. This was in the control room this time. Well, wherever it is. A button that had no business being pressed, uh, you know, in a position that had no business being changed, but nevertheless. Right. I think Griefer done it. Probably. W. David Jenkins III, this is from Smirking Chimp, writes, Joe and Dick in that 33%. Oh, sorry, Joyce. Joe and Zany Cheney remarked at a recent GOP fundraiser that the violent fiasco in the Middle East was all the more reason for voters to keep the current leadership in D.C.ville intact come this November. The only thing more bizarre than his remark is the fact that about 33% of American voters feel the same way. You know the ones, the people Einstein was referring to when he said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Uh. You know, you have to hand it to old dead-eyed Dick. Even in the face of mounting criticism from both his enemies and the neoconservative brigade, he steadfastly maintains that Saddam Hussein and bin Laden were buddies, and that we're doing just Marvy in Iraq. He's our very own Baghdad Bob, ignoring the explosions in the distance while telling us that everything is just fine. Oh, we're fine. And nearly a third of the country still cheers him on. This is also the same guy, by the way, who was telling us about the insurgency being in its death throes a couple of years ago. Who the hell are these people, this 33%? Sure, you can find them on the right-wing forums or watch them bloviating on television or hear, hear them on the radio, yet they're next to impossible to find on the street. For instance, at a rally for John Murtha a few weeks ago, roughly 200 supporters came out to cheer for the congressman Meanwhile, across the street were perhaps a dozen or so people calling themselves Veterans for Truth who had turned out to jeer the Marine veteran turned congressman. Here was a handful of folks who probably had more flags and yellow ribbons on their vehicles than they had gas in the tank out to show Johnstown, PA, and the rest of us that supporting the troops only applies to those who serve blindly without questioning the fact that they've been lied to. Obviously, like the swift boat vets for truth, these veterans are continuing the practice of confusing truth with smear. Just like that amazing 33% group, they don't see the reality of their shrinking numbers, and their little acts of public patriotism are just desperate examples of conservatives behaving badly. These are the people who applaud Rush Limbaugh as he mocks those American families trapped in the middle of the war zone in Lebanon as they plead for help, for, uh, for help to escape. They also believe his spurious remarks that those who want an end to the occupation in Iraq are celebrating the torture and beheading of two U.S. soldiers. These are the same people who snuggle up to Ann Coulter as she sings them lullabies about firing squads for newspaper editors, deportation of liberals, and carpet bombing of various countries. And how about those shivers of delight they get when Mike Weiner, a.k.a. Michael Savage, compares liberalism to AIDS or to dropping bunker busters on the U.N.? Or how about, according to Weiner, Zarqawi was sort of a Jesus figure to those who opposed the war in Iraq? With a steady diet of such misinformation, hatred, and intolerance, it's no wonder we have this national malady manifested in the 33 percenters in a country that is now known worldwide for illegal invasions, acts of torture, and spying on its own citizens. The 33 percent folks are still convinced that a stain on a certain blue dress is greater constitutional crisis than anything we face today. So how does a country defeat a political situation that's so desperate that it threatens the future of a once great and powerful nation? Well, the folks in Connecticut took a first step in that direction last week. The voters from that state sent a message to D.C.ville. If their representatives were going to keep supporting failed and deadly policy, then those representatives no longer deserve to speak for the majority. August 8th was a stark and unsettling exercise in democracy, and in the shame of us all, it was met with ugly and unpatriotic remarks from the White House in the guise of their media spokespersons. The days immediately following Joe Lieberman's well-deserved defeat put the sorry state of America's political affairs in the spotlight for the entire world to see. 
The vice president reached into his bag of campaign tricks from 04 and proclaimed that the results from the Connecticut primary would encourage al-Qaeda types. He also ranted that it showed the dangerous effects of extremists taking over the Democratic Party. RNC Chairman Ken Melman stated that the Connecticut primary results reflected an unfortunate embrace of isolationism, defeatism, and blame America first attitude by national Democratic leaders at a time when retreating from the world is especially dangerous. The arrogance of leaders who spent six years telling the world to blow off while accusing unapproving leaders of isolationism is so naked in its audacity that it boggles the mind. But that's not the real kicker, not by a long shot. All the while that the Bush administration was blasting away at folks for voting the wrong way and admonishing Democrats in general for being weak in the war on terror, the Bush gang was sitting on important information for four days. This information concerned a threat to airliners in Britain and to American passengers en route back to this country. According to intelligence reports, terrorists were planning to smuggle explosive liquids on board airliners headed back to the States. The resulting detonations would allegedly produce an event that would dwarf the devastation we witnessed on 9-11. And the Bush gang never said a word, never quietly stepped up security until four days after they knew. Not until they could politicize a security threat to their benefit again. But the 33%ers still can't see it. Even though I can still get on a plane with a pair of scissors, a book of matches, and a screwdriver, that ban was lifted quite a, while, quite a while ago, the fact that I won't have any water, toothpaste, or deodorant on the plane is a good reason to feel safe, knowing that George and company are on the job. Personally, I think I'd be more of a threat to my fellow passengers without the latter items, but oh well. One quick aside about all this, if security officials are worried about all those explosive liquids and the consequences should they become mixed, why am I seeing all those confiscated items at the airport being thrown haphazardly in the same trash bin? Just wondering. Anyway, so here's where America stands, or barely stands. According to those who lead us, we have the freedom to exercise our right to vote, as long as we vote for someone who will continue to enable them. If we don't, then we're accused of waving the white flag and declaring bin Laden's birthday as a national holiday. We have leaders in power who claim that the Republican Party is the only one that will keep us safe from attack, even though the State Department has stopped realizing the, tools of the totals of international acts of terrorism, something about the number being sky high since Bush took over. Our leaders will certainly alert us should there be any threats to our security here at home, unless the delay would be politically advantageous to them. And while our leaders and their 33 percent will remind us the, uh, the, uh, the, of the American soldiers dying every day in Iraq and Afghanistan to protect our freedoms, the same gang would happily take away or restrict those freedoms. And what happened in Britain is just one good reason why, by golly. Of course, the fact that it was British and Pakistani intelligence that thwarted the latest threat and not the result of Bush and Company's anti-terrorist network need not be pointed out by anyone. The fact is, the polls, the talk on the street, and now the results in Connecticut prove that the majority of Americans are waking up and are mad as hell. We're sick to death of being led by those who can offer nothing except fear itself. We're tired of those who claim to represent us as the opposition while continuing to support the same mistakes made over and over and over again. That second week in August showed just how angry voters have become and just how low and un-American the Republican leadership is. I have a feeling the next 12 weeks are going to get really nasty. That is nasty. That's Bush and Cheney. Nasty. Mm. We got 1,038 votes. We got a shot for uh, 1,050. <laughs> Let's not push it too hard today, okay? I mean, who the hell is going to listen to us today anyway? Ranting and raving. See, that's, that's one. I was so uh, shocked almost. I mean, you know, Keith Olbermann's been bashing Bush for a long time. But the fact that the NBC actually has been up front and coming out and talking about the fact that it was the, the Bush administration that pushed the U.K. to, like, uh, blow the cover on this whole uh, right. uh, deal. Before would, they were ready. Right. And then Oberman comes on last night and does that fabulous stuff. Everybody out there, even though if you heard us play it before, that 12-minute clip, 
documenting all this series of uh, so-called terror alerts. Right. You want to see the video anyway because they, you know, they flash back the news stories of the day. Oh, yeah, you get to see all that memory and duct tape. Right. <laughs> and yeah, that was a duct tape sound that we heard there. You know, my heart kind of skipped a beat during that story. Oh, yes. Yeah, so it wasn't a fart sound. It no, sound. no, it was tape I, sound. I, I, it was, maybe it was a duct tape fart. Don't say In that. In fact, you know something? You just came up by accident with a great idea. I, I know what you're thinking. You're Joyce right. Joyce would be ecstatic, man. We could just take duct tape everybody's so There won't be any more fart sound. Oh, that's not the idea that I had. Oh. I'm going to go get a roll of duct tape and record it. I don't think so. Okay. You can call me as a witness, but I'll be reluctant <laughs> to testify. 28 after 1 at 560 WQMA. Going back to school can be a little rough for the kids, and a good night's sleep is critical for the development of healthy minds. If your kids are having trouble adjusting the school night bedtime, it may simply be they're on a crappy old mattress. Time to replace it, man. Call Dial-A-Mattress. Make that one easy call at 1-800-MATTRESS like I've been doing for years. And they, they do it all for you. They come and take away the crappy, smelly, nasty old bedding. They set up the brand new one for you. Dial-A-Mattress can recommend a mattress for kids of any age. Have a new bed delivered the date and time you choose. Seven days a week from 8 in the a.m. till 10 p.m. Just give Dial-A-Mattress a two-hour window when it's convenient for you or the kids or whoever's going to be sleeping on it. And like magic, they show up on time every time. They can even deliver your mattress the same day that you call. So call 1-800-MATTRESS right now and get the absolute best selection of the top names in the mattress business. Sealy, Serta, Simmons, King Coil, Tempur-Pedic, and even Stearns and Foster Hewitt. Check for low prices online at mattress.com or just sit there on your fat ass, save a lot of gas, time, and sweat to make that one easy call. Easiest piece of shopping you could ever do. Call dial a mattress, 1-800-MATTRESS, M-A-T-T-R-E-S. Leave off the last ass because it stands for, did I say ass again? It stands for stupendous sensational savings. This is Neil Rogers. Welcome. This is 562 QAM. Jason, you're on QAM. We don't have any National Guardsmen because they're all fighting a war in Iraq right now. Not the National Guard. Pardon? Not the National Guard. No National Guard in Iraq? Not, not, there's no National Guard. Uh, no. Absolutely. Well, they stop you and you are driving drunk. They cuff you and you act just like a skunk. They book you and you make ethnic slurs. Yes, the passion of the male is it's a feeling that we all have in our gut. Everybody knows Mel is nuts. Well, they take you to the station because you cried. And you would think that you were being crucified. They throw you in the tank to sleep it off. And you act like they nailed you to a cross. One thirty-four twenty-six till two at five sixty WQAM. Oh, look at that! Two to two thirty-five tomorrow. We got Jesse Agler. That exciting or what?
Okay. And you want to know why Jesse's on for 35 minutes? I give up. Because tomorrow is a, a Marlin game, but oh, the Mandy's yeah, is well, on the West Coast. So you get through. I don't understand that. Well, what, what's the deal tomorrow? It's a noon game in L.A. at 12:10. I guess it's going to have to be, yeah. Well, that's what it says. 3:10 our time, 12:10 Pacific time. <clears throat> that must be a getaway time or something for travel. Because I guess the Marlins are coming home with the Braves this uh, coming weekend. Oh boy, you going to go to those games? No. You're going to be listening to uh, Dave Van Boren give his scintillating uh, play-by-play. Dave Van Horn, yes. Give his scintillating play-by-play. Okay. Oh, here's some bad news. This is enough to make you want to just, well, I mean, everything is enough to make you want to scream. A lot of screamers out there. Flaming! About 300 Alaska-based soldiers sent home from Iraq just before their unit's deployment was extended last month must now go back. Go back, the Army said yesterday, setting up a wrenching departure for troops and families who thought their service there was finished. Surprise! <laughs> the soldiers off from the 172nd Stryker Brigade, that's named after Jeff Stryker, of course, spelled with a Y, are among the 380 troops who had gotten home to Fort Wainwright when Defense Secretary Rumsfeld, Hermann Goering Rumsfeld, ordered the units to serve four more months. The remaining 80 will not have to return to Iraq. Army officials have sent a team of personnel and pay experts to Alaska, north to Alaska, to help sort out all this. So I like Johnny Horton a lot. He was pretty good. Not as good as Tim Horton, who makes a hell of a much better donut from the grave. Army officials have sent a team of personnel and pay experts to Alaska to help sort out all the soldiers' vacations, school enrollments, and other plans torn apart by the decision to return them to Iraq. The unit is now being stationed in Baghdad, one of the most violent parts of the country. Lieutenant Colonel Wayne Shanks, a service spokesman, said the Army fully realizes the hardships triggered by the move and is bending over backward to accommodate their families. The bulk of the 172nd Brigade was still in Iraq when Rumsfeld extended the deployment as part of a plan to quell the escalating violence in Baghdad, which, of course, by putting all those troops in uh, Baghdad where all this violence is going on, you know what that is going to mean, don't you? What? That's going to mean we're going to make it to 3,000 a lot sooner than later. We we passed 2,600 dead American troops this weekend, by the way, for those who are keeping track. Another 300 soldiers from the unit had left Iraq and gotten to Kuwait and were uh, about to board flights home when they were called back. Surprise! Before Monday's announcement, the troops who had already returned home to Alaska had been told that the decision on their fates would be made only on a case-by-case basis. How can he still? How can any of these people still be in orifice? That's the amazing question. Randy Schultz in the Palm Beach Post writes. He actually writes some good stuff now, and this is the second column he wrote that I read on the air. He ought to be tickled pink, shouldn't he? Should be. To be in a high-priced show like this. <laughs> Randy Schultz says, when all else fails, the GOP dials 911. It's an even-numbered year, and we're getting near Labor Day, so it was predictable that the Bush administration and Republicans would exploit the foiled terrorism plot in the United Kingdom to save their political hides. The campaign began Wednesday, a day after Senator Drew Lieberman lost the Democratic primary in Connecticut. Knowing of the upcoming arrest in Britain, Vice President Dick Cheney began the demagoguery. He accused Democrats of wishing for a return of the sort of pre-9-11 mindset in terms of how we deal with the world we live in. On Thursday, the Republican leadership in the House began, began calling Democrats defeatocrats who want to stand aside in the global war on terror. Defeatocrats. Here is the Bush GOP logic, to use the term loosely. Senator Lieberman embraced the White House's Iraq strategy, to use the term loosely. Iraq, Mr. Bush says, is the central front of the war on terror. So when Democrats reject the supporter of the war, the party is soft on terror. It's bunk, of course, but Iraq 9-11 worked in 2002 when Republicans gained control of the Senate and in 2004 when Bush was reelected. Alleged. This year especially, it's all the GOP has. The president's poll numbers can't break 40%. Ratings for Congress in general and Republicans in particular are in the dumper. Analysts compare their political conditions with those in 94 when 52 seats shifted in the House and Republicans took control. If you're a Republican, you're scared, so you try to scare the country. 
For five years, President Bush and his party have tried to convince Americans that they know better than Democrats how to protect the country and seek revenge for 9-11. If that's the case, why did Mr. Bush say of Osama bin Laden in March 2002, I'm truly not that concerned about him? Why did Mr. Bush shift the focus from al-Qaeda, which carried out 9-11, to Saddam Hussein, who wasn't involved in 9-11? The problem with Democrats is not that they've been timid about fighting terrorism. The problem with Democrats is they've been timid about confronting President Bush on fighting terrorism. In October 2002, he intimidated them so much that the debate over the Iraq resolution was anything but. Bob Graham, then Florida's senior senator, was one of the few to object, but he didn't do so as a sissy boy on terrorism. Senator Graham voted no because this resolution is too timid, he said. It's too limited, too weak. This resolution fails to recognize the new reality of the era of terrorism that war abroad will, without assertive security action, increase the prospects of terrorist attacks here at home. In fact, the war in Iraq alone leaves Americans more vulnerable to the threat that is facing us today. Those international terrorist organizations that have the capability to inflict upon us a repeat of the tragedy of 9-11. That's what Bobby Graham said. As we saw last week, nobody in Iraq was behind the airline plot in Britain. Suspicion went right to al-Qaeda and to what might be smaller al-Qaeda copycats and wannabes. Yet 135,000 American troops remain in Iraq at a cost of 2,600 lives and $300 billion in rising, trying to stop Shiites from killing Sunnis. Republicans in the House refer to Democrats as the cut-and-run caucus. Mr. Cheney says that to withdraw from Iraq would be seen as a sign of weakness that would embolden the terrorists. President Bush said it's a mistake to believe that there's no threat to the USA. Let's take those in reverse order. No credible politician from either major party believes that terrorism is no longer a threat to the country. The absence of other domestic terrorist incidents have dulled the fear, but awareness remains, especially after last week. Mr. Bush's decision to invade Iraq has left the country weaker, not stronger. The army is stretched and drained. The real terrorism threats, Iran, Hezbollah, and North Korea, have grown stronger because we've been dist distracted by the mistaken decision to start a war in Iraq. Among the cut-and-run caucus is retired Lieutenant General William Odom, director of the National Security Agency under Ronald Reagan. He wrote in the May-June issue of Foreign Policy magazine that getting out now may be our only chance to set things right in Iraq. President Bush is half right. Iraq is the central front. But in the war of politics, not the war on the war of terrorism. Very good. Pretty good article by Randy Schultz in the Palm Beach Post. Nice going, Randy. Randy. Oh, wrong Randy. I'm sorry. 19 till 2 at QAM. This is Neil Rogers. This is 560 QAM. Lance's making, he used to make the girls cry, and now he makes the boys scream. Uh -huh. Or something like that. For the ice cream. Do you? Anyway, uh, for ice cream, the Cuban government released seven new pictures of Fidel Castro yesterday, all of them showing the Cuban leader confined to bed during his birthday visit from Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez. Given a careful... 
cultivation of Castro's image during his 47-year domination of Cuba. The pictures could be interpreted as further evidence. See, one thing that a lot of these, well, you know it already, a lot of the wishful thinking crowd in South Florida don't understand, that 47 years is a very long time, and that when people right. have lived under a system and under a leader for a very long, and that's the only thing mm-hmm. that they know. Right. See what I'm saying? I, I do. I know. Yeah. Thought about it often. At any rate, uh, the pictures could be interpreted, uh, according to the Herald, as further evidence that he remains critically ill and could suggest that he may not have had the strength Sunday to even sit in a chair, in a chair. Castro turned 80 on Sunday. Well, unhappy birthday to his ass. How do you like that? He was hospitalized in late July, and several photos taken earlier and released Sunday also showed an apparently fatigued Castro sitting in a chair. Also on Sunday, in a statement released in Castro's name, strongly hinted that his condition remained serious and his prognosis could be grim. Remember, Bob Grimm pitched for the Yankees, won 20 games, I think, in 1954, 20-6 in his rookie year. Well, the Israelis, by the way, shot and killed a five uh, Hezbollah. I just thought I'd mention that. Well, good for them. Yeah. The Hezbollah didn't fire at them, but they came. They gave them a menacing look. I see. You know that look? Dennis the menacing? Give a cook and take a look at that look. The statement, uh, see, there are only two parts of Judaism that I embrace. One is the Yiddish, which is very amusing and uh, probably the funniest language in the world. And number two is dietary. I mean, who could pass up a nice uh, bowl, a nice plate of kishka, right? Right. Or a nice bowl of matzo ball soup. Or, of course, at, uh, you know, just that one day a year at, at uh, Purim, those delicious homentashen. Poppy seeds, please. Other than that, it's all, uh, it's all the same crap. You know, just pick your, pick your brand of poison, all you religionists out there. Oh, but it's the spiritual side of life, Neil. You know what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Pile of crap. Here's one of my favorite stories of all time. Doing a heck of a job, Brownie. No, no, that article I read about the 33% from the guy at the Palm Beach Post, that, that, that's, that sums it up perfectly. Because the fact that this guy has still got a, a 33% approval rating has got to be uh, shocking, astonishing. If it were 3%, it would be, you know, then, then you'd feel better about life. Yeah, well, that's the faith-based crowd. Hope. You're not going to shake their faith. How about shake their booty? Not either. Oh, my God. But every single thing that this government has done for these, besides, the only thing that they do well is steal elections. They do a fabulous job on that. And this is the story about Katrina. Heck of a job, Brownie. (laughs) And then Brownie turns around and does that interview and just rips him in the ass. I love that. That Mm -hmm. That was poetic justice, wasn't it? That was beautiful. That's what they get. That is correct. FEMA will replace locks on as many as 118,000 trailers used by Gulf Coast hurricane victims after discovering the same key could open many of the mobile homes, which is always good because if you go out and get bombed, you know, right. like, like Josh or like Mel Gibson and you stagger home, and maybe you're not in the right mobile home, but at least, at least your key will open the door. Hey, what's the big deal? That's only a problem if all the trailers look the same. Right. Oh, or I'm if sorry. All, if all the trailer trash looks the same. Yeah, that's it. One manufacturer cut only 50 different kinds of keys for the trailers that sold to FEMA. That means, in a worst-case scenario, one key, one key could be used to unlock up to 10 mobile homes in a park of 500 trailers. Well, that's only one out of uh, 50. Huh? Yeah, what's the big deal? Yeah, what's the big simus with that? Although I don't like carrot simus, although I do love potato kugel and luxion kugel. Mm. FEMA officials said that such a situation was unlikely, but they still moved to warn storm evacuees living in Louisiana and Mississippi trailer parks of the security risk. Another great example of your tax dollars hard at work. Just like all those billions and billions of tax dollars used to be uh, killing all those uh, Iraqi pain in the ass bystanders and all those poor lesbianese who got in the way there in uh, Lesbanon. That'll teach them. That's right, to support that Hezbollah. Or attack Israel. 
We are, that's right, the lesbianese should never have attacked. We are working aggressively to establish the extent of the problem and determine the best solution for the safety and security of those who now reside in these trailer units, said Gil Jamison, Deputy Director of Gulf Coast Recovery for FEMA. He said FEMA was asking residents to be extra vigilant and take precautions to secure the trailer that they occupy. As Sigourney Weaver once said, nice trailer. Don't you love that scene? That was a great scene. Not as good as the, um, <laughs> the head shot, but, you know, still. I beg your pardon? Not as good as the scene in the head shot. No, no, I, well, I'm, not, I'm not comparing. Right. I, I like right. I like well for for different reasons. You know, we That's view right. these we view these things through a different uh, set right. of eyes. But the scene still, at the it was end, funny. Yeah, I like the scene in the end, even though it's corny. Mm-hmm. People would say, "Oh, gee, all of a sudden, like everybody's uh, a happy ending." You know, well, n- not everything has to end like unhappy. You know, right? And it wasn't all that happy anyway. We don't know who was going to no, be doing was, what. Happened. It was fine. It yeah. gave you some hope. Yeah, that's right. Let's have a little bit of hope with all the other crap going on in the world. That's a good movie. Imaginary heroes. Even Josh liked it. Which that's surprising, considering that gay element. Just, I mean, that wasn't like an overwhelming. Don't show anything. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're probably but, not too happy about that. But just remember, he's not gay. You are. <laughs> it figures. What a what a line. Yeah, it figures. Well, what, what what does that mean? Can you explain it to me? <laughs> it figures. That was funny. Okay. Yeah. Well. And, of course, who, who of, of the two of them, who looked by far the swishier, okay? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. This is a buddy there. Mudge boy. <laughs> <laughs> what? A thousand, and, a thousand and seventy-one votes on the poll. We're, we're going to come close to 1,100 today. And, of course, this is like, uh, you know, while everybody's hiding under the bed, that's not too bad. This is Neil Rogers. This is 560 QA. Oh, People all over the world are losing their damn minds. That's it. Get off the loading express. Enemy bombers approaching. Flash the alerts. Open fire. We got bitters. We got bombers. Warning. Warning. Contractors and marchers. We got profits. High gas prices. They're going up by six cents. Improvised explosive devices. And the world just does not get what it's all for. Of course, you know, this means war. I love this war. There's trouble from roughnecks who fight with their fists. Caliber. Money, 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 money. Radical Islam. Are you crazy or something? Way more fun than Vietnam. Um, we got Arabs. We got voters. Do you think people will vote for me? I guess. Both too angry to notice. Everyone else will be dead and poor. Hide your money in a mattress. We're all gonna die. I love this war. I'm dying. Out bye here. bye bye. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! You fairy!